This is episode 297 of the Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at A24's new film, The Lighthouse, as well as going over all the week in movie news and movie trailers. All that and more on today's Real Me In. What is going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. And uh, thank you for joining us on this movie conversation adventure. If you are new to the show, welcome. Uh, thank you for taking a chance on us. We will be talking about movies here shortly, but that's what we, we do. We'll talk about trailers, movie news, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty uh, conversations of movies that we pick throughout the week that drop in theaters. And just talk about them for you guys. So if you if you like movies and you like uh, listening to people talk about them, and you want to join in on the conversation and you know all that stuff, uh, thank you for taking a chance on us. We we appreciate. it. Hopefully you stay till the end. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. We always appreciate you guys. This is episode 297. As I stated up at the top, we will be going over the lighthouse uh, A24's um, new adventure with uh, uh, Robert Eggers. You know he previously had his. Um, uh, adventure with them with the witch and you know that was uh, an explosive movie a few years back so he's back once again uh, and so that will be our main discussion and we'll uh, talk about uh, a few little trailers uh, one of them is called war stars i have no idea what it's what it's about but um that will be one of the trailers and uh, some news pieces that joseph has decided to throw upon us uh before i throw it over to joel uh, if you guys could you know share this around and let people know this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to I would really appreciate it. Joel would really appreciate it. We love you guys a lot. Speaking of the Joel, Joel, how was your week, sir? Um, it is almost the end of October. Cannot believe it. Uh, <laughs> we This is your last episode, by the way, of Joel's 20s. Uh, when we yeah. talk to him next, he will be an old man, and he will uh, require a walker, and I will... Uh, uh, assist him in that with his birthday present. So, um, Joel, uh, how is it going, sir? Is your final week? Uh, well, next week is your final week, but this is your final episode in your twenties and stuff. Uh, how was your week? What would you watch and all that stuff? What's been going on with over there? I promise to sound like an old man next time. Uh, per- no, perfect. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. I, I can't believe, well, first I can't believe that it's already almost November this, this year. It just doesn't seem like it should be almost November. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be an insane week. Um, I, I'll probably go more into it next week when we come, when we come back, but maybe not. Uh, part of it is, is because our, uh, we have some personnel changes at, at work happening in the next couple weeks. Our store manager's last day, uh, at, at our store is today. In fact, she is 16. Well, about an hour and 16 minutes into her last shift. Um, and by the, when I, I work later on, I work at four, I think she leaves at five or something. So, um, yeah, it'll be the last time I see her in the, in, in the context of being my boss, which is, which is really strange. Um, and then one of the other, uh, kind, I mean, kind of managers, they're called shift leads. They're, they're lower, they're level, lower level managers, but he still is kind of my superior is leaving. I think, on my birthday. I think that's his last day. Um, and in fact, I think I'm closing with him. So I'll be, um, I'll be closing with him on his last day. So that'll be crazy. 
And then also next weekend is a sale weekend because it's our company anniversary. So we always have all, all the stores all over the place always have a, a sale this week or next weekend. So um, that'll be crazy. The assistant store manager is going to become the acting store manager until they either give it to him permanently or uh, offer it to somebody else. And so his first week will include a sale. So that'll <laughs> be a, that'll be interesting to see him juggle. He's, 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 you know, he's a professional. He'll, he'll, he'll be able to handle it. Um, he's the oldest of all of us, and he's, he worked at Kohl's last, last time. He was a manager there, so, um, you know, he's got, he's got experience beyond this door. So I'm, I have confidence we'll get through it. But yeah, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be an insane week. Um, my dad's gone this weekend to Chicago. My mom is headed up to Missouri next week. So yeah, it's just gonna be. It's going to be a weird, a weird time <laughs> to say the least. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, and then in the middle of all that, my birthday. So it's crazy, crazy. This next couple of weeks I can imagine is going to just go by in a flash. Um, even if it's not going to feel like it in the moment, it's going to go by in a flash. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I guess as, as for my week this past week, um, I've been finally, you know, continuing to move through Game of Thrones. I'm really bad about TV shows, guys. I'm not like Chase. I can't keep up with all of them. He watches Chase. You watch what, like, 26 shows at the same time? So it's pretty fantastic uh, I how I, I schedule it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and I and I literally mean that. He he just has 26 TVs and he watches all of the shows at the same time on him. Uh, <laughs> this is but, why I never leave my house and have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm bad about TV shows, uh, you know, especially if they're they're not on. I can't. I, I just can't. If I, unless I've, you know, like I'm watching it with my parents, and you know, then it becomes like a family thing. But our family's not going to watch Game of Thrones together. So I've been I've been trying to do that, um, and I'm about halfway, I guess, through season two, something like that. So I'm I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, and then let's see, I rewatched a couple movies just because I felt like it this week. Um, Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and it's because of a certain trailer that we're going to be talking about. Um, and then The Girl Next Door, um, from 2004, one of my favorite movies of all of 2004. Love that one. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's a movie that really went under the radar. Kind of was. I don't know how well it did at the box office. I don't think it did super well. It was like a March or April release. Went really under the radar. Wasn't helped by the fact that I think it was like number two or something on Roger Ebert's list of the worst films of 2004. He gave it like half a star on his website. Um, and so wasn't helped by that, you know, thumbs way down kind of thing. Um, but I love it. I, I, I think that the majority of the critics who who reviewed it poorly in 2004 I'll put it I'll put it the way that our friend Mark who really likes this movie as well put it um I think that they watched a different movie <laughs> because I don't know what movie any of them are talking about it's not I mean it's pretty it's it's R rated and it and it earns that but it's not the raucous American pie thing that people think it is it's it, it really it's, isn't and I and this comes from someone who loves American pie it is not like yeah, it at all it's it's not it's a lot it's a lot American Pie and all of those, they're pretty abrasive. They're pretty abrasive. I mean, some of them mix in sweetness, but in terms of the R-rated raunch, they they lean heavily into that. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But Girl Next Door, 
I think it's a lot sweeter and a lot less abrasive and a lot more sex positive than a lot of these other movies, which kind of uh, can mix in some, you know, like shaming the female characters. This one doesn't. I mean, it's about a guy who learns that a porn star is living next to him. So he uh, kind of falls for her, then learns that there's deeper layers and then also learns that she is basically, uh, you know, you know, expressing her sexuality in the way that she feels comfortable with, even though she's also got a lot of really complicated opinions of the porn business as well because of, because of her boss, because of just the scene. She enjoys the work, but she doesn't enjoy the, uh, the, the environment. And it's all about that. That's a complex idea. That's, that's not, that's not a simple thing. And I think that this movie is a really like intelligent, also really kind of, there's a lot of tension in the movie too. Um, just because of Timothy Oliphant's performance as the, as the porn manager, and it's it's just it's a fantastic movie. Well, and, and, and the reason uh, why it failed, and this is a, a problem with some movies that are marketed this way, you know, Fox at the time when they marketed this movie, it was oh look, it's like an American Pie movie. Exactly. And so if people that went hated back... that movie, they were never going to see it. Right. Exactly. And even the even the critics who liked American Pie felt like this was just being a really like low rent cheap version of that. And so it's really interesting. I went back and watched the trailer um, after I watched the movie and, and it completely sells everything about it wrong. It totally uh, focuses on all of the, all of the raunchy comedy stuff. It doesn't show any sort of character nuance. And there's a ton in this movie, any sort of nuance in the screenplay, um, anything that might, lead you to believe that his two friends played by um uh good old paul dano and chris marquette are at at all anything more than just the dumbo friends they have a lot of intelligence and and there's the screenplay says a lot of uh, a lot about them too like just as people they are genuine characters they're not just they're not just uh comic relief you know the silly comic relief in the the comedy it's you know they're not (laughs) here's the thing i actually think that the friends here do more than people like stifler and american pie uh, to the in terms of the narrative, I I think that uh, I think that that's uh, worth saying. And so, yeah, this it's a fantastic movie. Um, All right, it looks like we have uh, we have lost the the Joel for a second. Oh, don't you go, don't you love the reconnecting uh, poor uh, network connection? Uh, fantastic movie. Yeah. Um, um, no, I I was just gonna say that uh, th- this is this was a cornerstone movie for me. And ironically enough, the one actor in this movie, Chris Marquette, it was the only actor I had seen previous. So this was my first introduction to Paul Dano, Timothy oh, yeah. Oliphant, Elisha Cuthbert, and Emil Hirsch, by the way. This was my introduction to all of them because I saw Chris Marquette in uh, Freddy vs. Jason the year prior. So he was the only one I knew. And then it's funny because I don't see much of him anymore and then everyone else is soaring. So um, – Right. Yeah, I, it was uh, it was a very good cornerstone movie for me because Timothy Oliphant he has never done anything else like this, so he's never gone back to a role uh, like this. So I, I'm glad that we have this little capsule in time of uh, <laughs> this performance of his as a, as a porn manager. It's it's great. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So anyway, uh, other than that, I don't know if I did much. I mean, I saw you know I watched Dolomite as my name. Um, man, I saw Pain and Glory, 
with Antonio Banderas. I'm trying to remember back through my week. It was a weird. It was I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was it wasn't a very eventful week, but I'm I'm coming up on one that is that is extremely eventful. Well, geez, I, I feel bad because like mine was just slammed left and right because uh, <laughs> Joel follows my Twitter feed and he was just seeing all the, right. the stuff I was watching this week and it just it was back to back to back. Uh, yeah, I to start off, I mean, because you guys know uh, uh, the podcast feed, you know, when I drop stuff. So I saw uh, the current war director's cut, which Brian Tallarico made a great point on Twitter. They don't ever call it director's cut in the title card in the movie. And I was like, he's right. But they call it that on the poster, and uh, the way they delivered it, just, like a, just rem- a- just remember, folks, just remember this: if you're if you're in this position of trying to title something, if you're if you're a critic or an aspiring critic or whatever, and you're titling things, go by what's on the screen, not what's on the posters, because the the people working on the movie know what it's called. So here's an example. Uh, the sixth Fast and the Furious movie is called Furious Six because that's what they say on there. And it's actually proven in retrospect by the fact that the next movie was called Furious Seven. So just because it says it on the trailers or the posters or whatever, it's basically them trying to tie in the movie to the series to make it easily recognizable to the regular audience. But call the movie what it says on the screen so the entire title yes of birdman has all of the thing i mean you don't have to speak it but if you're if you're titling something with the birdman review then you do birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance because that's the that's the name of the movie so like there's a there's um uh oh what was it oh iron man 3 for whatever reason and i don't know what it is but it doesn't matter why uh at the end of the movie when it's leading into the into the uh the credits they spell out the word three so even though iron man 2 doesn't do that it's iron man 3 t-h-r-e-e so yeah just a little a little thing there um and, and don't that that's my fault because when i did yeah. a review i called it the current war director's cut and that's just because when i was sitting there at the screening it is on the poster and the reps called it that so it's it's right. really weird to me that everyone else would announce it as such, but in the movie they still didn't change it. Now right. I don't know the full legal things that went behind the scenes with this movie, but if you're unaware of it, this was under the Weinstein Company. You all know what happened with Harvey. When you're out it as a piece of crap, your company goes down, and so they have to uh, kind of sell off their stuff. And my understanding is that they had to do a director's cut. Or label it as something else because under the contract with the Weinstein Company, whatever cut they had, it was called the Current War. That is their version. And in order for 101 Studios to release their version, they had to alter alter it in some way. So I'm assuming they either added a little something, took out a little something, didn't really change it much, but had to do just enough to call it something else because of legal terms or legal contracts. So that's my understanding of probably what happened. Um, but yeah, that's my fault. I called it, uh, the current war director's cut. Uh, but yeah, they need to figure out, um, how to do that before they screen these things. So, uh, yeah, I saw that Monday, um, saw black and blue on Tuesday while everyone else in Dallas saw Jojo rabbit. So 
Yeah. Uh, so I would have loved to see Jojo Rabbit. You poor, but poor man. Yeah. Uh, I don't get invites to Fox Searchlight, so it is what it is. But I do get invites to Sony, so I will take what I can get. But um, just real quick, Black and Blue is not as terrible as you think it is. Uh, so there's that. Um, and on Wednesday, I saw the report. I just got done filming that review before I started recording this. And you guys will get that uh, three weeks from now. Um uh, so yeah, uh, saw the report and then next week is kind of a, a light week. So that way you guys can take a break for a little bit. Um, cause I gave you guys, uh, three mini reviews and you're getting this one. So, um, no real reviews until Jojo rabbit and I'll also throw in parasite as well. If I can see it. Uh, but then in November, just get ready. Cause it's, it's going to be come flying at flying at you. Um, I got, uh, last Christmas uncut gems, uh, Charlie's Angels and 4V Ferrari so far in uh, November and it's in October. So that's what I'm saying. Like they hi, like they throw these out um, all at once so they can try to get uh, everyone's um, kind of awards considerations before everything is due for the uh, Critics Association. So that's why they do this stuff. So you guys will be getting a lot of stuff, but uh, this next week will be um, taking a break. But that was it movie-wise. Let's talk about some television because, you know, uh, Joel was waiting for it. He was waiting for the eye roll because he's just like, just talk about your, your stupid TV and let's move on. Um, <laughs> so uh, this week uh, in the comedy sphere, uh, probably one of the funniest episodes I've seen of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. The They they focus on group text um, as they're all like at a zoo and they're all separated and – of course, like Danny DeVito's character, Frank, he's super old, so he doesn't really know uh, how to text. And then, like, you have other people that are doing, like, witty comebacks. And it's just, I don't know, it was just really funny. I, I've never, that's probably the hardest I've laughed at a an episode around a group text as your main focal point. Um, uh, hilarious. Now, in the drama sphere, I'm going to go ahead and call it right now. If there's any other performance that could rival this one I'm about to mention, then so be it. And I know it's early on, but I'm going to go ahead and call it. Lizzie Kaplan uh, has a really good shot at winning the Emmy next year for Castle Rock Season 2. She is absolutely amazing in um, uh, this season of Castle Rock. She plays Annie Wilkes, and so they're kind of focusing on... um, Misery and Salem's Lot in this one, because uh, in season one they focused on like Shawshank, um, and I forgot what other one. But the show is mainly like Stephen King characters, themes, movies, and they kind of integrate a couple of them in each season, and they just make a, a really good story out of it. So, yeah, she is terrifying uh, as Annie Wilkes in this uh, this season, but she's oh, like she. Because when you when you're doing an Annie Wilkes performance, just like as Kathy Bates has taught us, you got to have the wide eye, like almost Rami Malek look, where it doesn't look like you ever blink. And uh, Kaplan delivers that uh, very well. And uh, uh, Joel, our girl uh, Elsie Fisher, plays her daughter in the season. Yeah, um, she's been she's been uh, doing her part in just you know, very very good at advertising the show on her Twitter. So right, yeah, yeah she's really I, I've been I've been really wanting to catch up with the first season. I don't know if they're connected at all. I don't know how if, if I have to see the okay. So I'll probably I'll probably uh, tune into that. I'll yeah, see, I'll please, see please do. Thought. I and what's what's great about Elsie is that when you watch when you watch her in the show, 
you're like she's really awkward and she her acting is off just a hair and you don't know what it is but as the show keeps going you because i'm a dumb dumb it takes me a while to connect these things my brain was going oh wait she is being awkward and she's you know a little um little awkward in her line delivery because that's the character if you look at annie wilkes she is a very off human being for sure uh and if you have a spawn of that person, they're probably going to act the same way. And so I think taking her her kind of performance structure in eighth grade and applying it to this is actually genius. So whoever cast her did a really great job because um, she she's showing that she's not just, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the chick from eighth grade. Like she's growing into her own right. And I think being on the show lets her um, – kind of play around with things a little bit and expand her 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 range tim robbins is also in it uh barkhad abdi is also in it uh he's been in a couple of things since captain phillips but i'm glad he's you know getting more um you know this isn't like a lead role but you know it's a really great supporting role so you know if he can grow his career i'm all i'm all down for that but yeah it's just it's a great season so far they they dropped the first three episodes um and it's really disturbing, <laughs> and, and a couple of uh, the kill scenes with Annie Wilkes. It's uh, whew, it just gets under your skin. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. You know, I just watched my usual stuff, but that was the new one that came out this week. Um, I plan on catching uh, Mrs. Fletcher, the HBO uh, limited series with Katherine Hahn because I absolutely adore that woman. Um, gotta gotta watch Watchmen. Didn't watch that, um, and then I want to see. His Dark Materials when it comes out because the missus wants to see it. So, um, yeah. So, a lot of great stuff coming out. Um, but that is it for television-wise. Uh, Joel, there was um, there was some trailers that dropped this week. And I don't know if you know this, but the one you were looking forward to the most with Vin Diesel, that's the first one we're going to talk about. <laughs> like, you have not stopped talking about this one. No, man. I'm, I'm looking forward most to Star Trek. Oh, oh, okay. Star so... Trek, yes. Uh, uh, I forgot that J.J. Abrams was doing the, the fifth installment or wherever they're on. Um, so, uh, so yeah, trailers that dropped this week. Let's go ahead and start with the one that I'm pretty sure pretty sure that Joel and I do not really care about, and then we'll dive into some uh, of the good ones. So Bloodshot is a thing that exists, and you're probably thinking to yourself, what on God's green earth is Bloodshot? Well, let me tell you. It's based on a um, – uh, uh, what is it, Joel? Is it Vantage or is it Dark Horse? I forgot what what comic line it is, but it is based on a comic book. I th- and, think it's. I'm gonna look it up. Okay. Um, this one uh it is about uh Ray Garrison, a slain soldier, and he is reanimated with superpowers. Uh, and he is under the assumption that someone has killed his family, and is playing a lot with um uh alternate realities and like memories in his head that they implanted and he kind of goes after him and the person it's, val- it's valiant valiant that's what it was i was yeah. like it valiant. starts with a v it starts with a v um but yes uh vin diesel plays the title character and he's going after the people that murdered his family um this exists this is a thing and it just drops out of nowhere and sony's like hey did you have any plans for February 2020? You didn't? Were you going to see this movie? And it's like, I don't really know if I want to. Um, the trailer's fine. I mean, it has 
it has a visual style that can be appealing. You know, uh, a lot of slow mo, a lot of uh, interesting camera camera work, and it's playing out like a what a comic book would kind of play out as. You know, the idea of the movie. I guess it could be cool. I just I I don't know I. I think Joel and I are on the same page with this one. It's Vin Diesel. He's the elephant in the room uh, with this movie. I, I think I think he works in some some regards with like you know <sighs> Chronicles of Riddick or you know he does his thing in Fast and Furious. But like that's all I really care to know him as. If he wants to broaden his horizons, that's cool. Like maybe do more drama stuff. Like do a, a stripped down dramatic movie and show us that you want to be. Uh, taking uh, something more seriously, but when you do stuff like this, I'm like, eh, I'm good. Um, yeah, he's just he's just not good in this trailer. <laughs> I don't know why he was cast in this movie. Uh, uh, yeah, there's really nothing more to say. It, it it's being dumped in February for a reason. Um, I'm gonna get an invite to it, which you know that I, I'm a movie whore, so I'm gonna watch it regardless. But if you're talking about a trailer to get you like excited for it, this is not it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> um, so, Bloodshot, it's a thing. Um, so, the next one, and I double-checked with Joel uh, before we started recording so I can get this right. Joel, is it Les Miserables? Les Miserables. Les Miserables, let's do it. Uh, so um, all the people out there that know French are probably uh, uh, their ears are probably bleeding right now. We, we on, apologize on behalf of all on behalf of all Americans. Yes, uh, every this, single American. We're sorry. Yes, because uh, we, we have some Canadian <laughs> listeners. And I'm sure they uh, uh, have unsubscribed. Uh, sorry, Brad. Um, so uh, this one is really really awesome. Uh, this is something that kind of came out of nowhere. I had no idea it would even it even existed. Um, I don't really know from a marketing standpoint uh, using the same title uh, as uh, other films that have used it uh, that have nothing to do with this one, by the way. That's the only uh, hesitation I have. But this is the French uh, selection for the uh, Academy Awards this year for Best Foreign Feature. Don't really know about that since Parasite is probably going to sweep. But, you know, this one could have a run for its money because this one is a uh, about a young um, – young girl who joins an anti-crime brigade uh, in the city in 1993 and uh, oh no excuse me a young man he meets his new uh, teammates uh, and discovers tensions between different groups of the district deals a lot with uh, police brutality uh, racism segregation um, uh, and you know just uh, every, everything that kind of deals with that Uh this one caught me off guard, and I absolutely love the trailer. It's really um, got this kind of raw, explosive feel to it. It feels like you're watching real people endure these terrible situations. It's a really well edited trailer. It you know kind of rises up in tension and uh, overall suspense, and it kind of gets your blood pumping. Uh, not only from an entertainment perspective, because you're like, wow, this is really well crafted, but also the rage and anger that you have uh, within you as you're watching it because you know what what is happening is completely wrong and um, unacceptable. It looks like a powerful movie, and I really want to see it, and it comes from uh, Amazon Studios. And I can tell you guys right now, without even uh, telling you what my overall thoughts of Honey Boy and the report, 
And um, yeah, because those are the only Amazon Studio movies so far. They're on a roll. And if this trailer is any indication of what the movie is, sign me the F up. And I I can't wait to see it. It comes from Amazon, like I said. And uh, this is the official France uh, selection for the Academy Awards. So awesome, awesome, awesome. So if you guys love foreign films, check this one out. I think you'll really enjoy the trailer. And and I've been hearing that it lives up to all of that hype. I've, I've really been hearing good things about this, and I'm very curious to see it. For sure, yeah, I, I I can't wait. If if uh, you know, because I've already talked to Joel behind the scenes about it. But if I can get screeners this year, we do get Amazon, and I'm pretty sure if I get this one, Joel's gonna be like, please put this one in the stack. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, really really excited about that one. So hey, Amazon, you're doing good, kid. You're doing good. Um, so the last one that we're gonna talk about is um, like Joel mentioned, it's Star Trek Seven. J.J. Uh, Abrams kind of comes back to rejuvenate the franchise for a fourth time, I think. Um, no, it's uh, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. We got the full and final trailer, which has been really fascinating, by the way, because ever since The Force Awakens came out, they have the same marketing method for every single thing that they do. Under the Lucasfilm uh, logo, they have a teaser trailer and it explodes. A few months later, they have one full trailer and it explodes online. And then they have a few TV spots and then the movie comes out. That's it. That's all they do. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they don't ever describe what the movie's about, ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they know that. They know that we're going to go see it because uh, Joel and I are um, Star Wars shills. So that's what we do. But so we don't know the story about this one. We can assume that it is Kylo and Ray fighting the resistance in some way, shape, or form. That's about it. Um, we don't know what it's about, but we get some really great uh, imagery in this one. It's going to be epic. I think this one is showcasing this is going to be way more epic than the previous two. Um, I saw Joel online say it's got, you know, Return of the Jedi vibes. Um uh, yeah, which I, I agree with, uh, and I, I love this trailer. Doesn't explain a lot. We're gonna go see it. I got my tickets. I'm ready to go. Um, I can't wait to see where this ends. As you guys, if you were new to the show, like relatively new, I love the Last Jedi. I think it is my favorite one out of the bunch. I will take that to my grave. And so I, I knew whatever was gonna follow that one. I was excited to see it. So this might be the most excited i've ever been for a star wars film and i'm just a casual fan um so that's kind of my thoughts on that um and of course you guys know joel hates the franchise i don't know why <laughs> he even bothers talking about it he just loves to crap on it um it's, it's kind of amazing but yeah. um yeah so i i like the trailer i like the uh mysterious kind of alluring aspects about it that we don't really know anything about it but the imagery is quite powerful provides this kind of really last final epic bow to this uh, storyline. I'm all for it. So, um, uh, oh, and I guess the, 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 the scene that got me the most wasn't um, anything action-based. It was when uh, some sick person decided to bring C- CP3O back to life just for him to go, I wanted to see my friends one last time before he's probably going to die in that scene. We're like, why did you do that to us? Why did you toy with our heartstrings like that, you you animals? So uh, that, that was probably my favorite scene, by the way, was um, 
someone bringing him back to life just so he could see his friends one last time uh, made me almost shed a tear. So, yeah, I liked the trailer quite a bit. Excited, bought my tickets. I'm seeing it Thursday night, so or that Thursday night. So if you know Joel uh, wanted to do a Friday show, I would be well prepared because um, I wanted to make sure uh, I see it in time. So. Joel, what did you think of Star Trek Nine? Uh, did you think that J.J. Abrams was taking an interesting approach to the ninth film in the franchise? You know, uh, uh, what, what do you think? Well, hey man, it's it's as every Star Wars fan knows the the great line of dialogue: "Space, the final frontier." I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, oh God, you probably <laughs> just made so many Star Trek fans mad. Why'd you do that? <laughs> well, it's sort of like that picture of Patrick Stewart that credits him as being Gandalf, and then it says, use the Force, Harry. All right. Uh, <laughs> it's greatness. It's uh, probably the best uh, meme on the internet. Um, yeah, no, this is a great trailer. Uh, you know, they've been they've done this three times now with these movies. Well, really kind of five times, I guess. Um, giving us, you know, something of a trailer kind of early on in the year. They didn't do that with Solo because it came out early in the year. But... Um, but they did tease us with two trailers on that as well, and they just keep doing it. They just keep knocking it out of the park. I, I just, I, I, it's some sort of magic, I guess. This is this is an excellent trailer. It looks epic. I've heard, uh, you know, there's rumors that it's the longest one, um, which you know, the the last Jedi was 151 minutes, so that wasn't that wasn't exactly short. Um, on IMDb, I don't know if this is because you got to take IMDb with a grain of salt. It says two hours and thirty five minutes. That would be yeah, so that would be four minutes longer than the Last Jedi, which I guess sounds fair. It sounds fair, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, they went up from uh, the Force Awakens by like fifteen minutes. So just for my sake, if they could do that again, give us a two hour and forty six minute movie, I would be I would be fine with that. Um, but yeah, I love the imagery in this, and it very clearly does have Return of the Jedi vibes because we see what looks to be the desiccated Death Star, the one that uh, at the end of um, Return of the Jedi maybe fell to maybe Endor or one of the other moons of Endor. Um, because, of course, as everybody knows, they weren't on Endor in Return of the Jedi. They were on a moon of Endor. Um, Endor is a planet. So it, it could be... One of the other moons, there's a rumor that it's like the ocean moon of Endor or something like that. I don't know. Um, whatever the case, a lot of water, so it so it would be believable that it's the ocean moon of Endor. Uh, we see a lot of water here. We see the we we kind of see the Emperor in a shot that's gonna haunt me. Uh, he's in the foreground. He's clearly attached to something, um, which tells me that he just barely survived his fall in Return of the Jedi. Um, and he is basically clinging to life. So that'll be interesting to see. He's also very tall now. Um, again, again, the last Jedi and I rewatched it this week. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. That's why the last Jedi after, you know, six or seven viewings now is my favorite movie in the franchise since Empire Strikes Back. Um, you know, when we originally reviewed it, I think I said I liked it a little less than The Force Awakens, but of course that was the immediate response. I had I had only seen it once. So it wasn't like I had I'd had, you know, the experience that I've had with it now, and I think that it's it's a landmark in the series. I think it's great. Um, bold, uh, you know, full of vision, original. 
It's great. And so I can't wait to see what they're going to do. But that's the thing is that sort of like with the end of The Empire Strikes Back, watching it for the first time, having no idea because I hadn't heard anything about the twist, having no idea about the big twist in that one. I didn't know what was going to happen in Return of the Jedi. And I don't know what's going to happen in this one. And I can't wait. It's um, it's a big, epic, visually stunning trailer. Um, you know, it's J.J. Abrams. He brought back his cinematographer, Dan Mendel, who's worked with him. Oh, gosh. Um, I think from the beginning. I think that he's I think that he's pretty solidly worked with him every time. So, yeah, I, I, I can't wait. Uh, it's it's going to be great. And it just it comes out less than two months. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm excited. So, yeah, that's definitely going to be the movie that we re- that we review that week. Unless, of course, Chase just has this weird urge to talk about cats. I so. mean, it's <laughs> probably going to be the case. I mean, uh, I'm getting the invite for it. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to sit through it because I'm just curious at this point. Curious like a cat, uh, if you will. So, but yeah, there you go. I, I just, just real quick, though. I mean, some of the moments in this trailer, I love... Of course, the little um, uh, confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi set against an image of, of Rey hugging Leia. Very emotional. Of course, the C-3PO thing is – it's sort of like – so I was at my brother's house last night, um, and we were, you know, we were taking care of their kids while they, uh, while they were out. And whenever he came back, we watched the trailer again because he wanted to watch it with me even though he'd seen it and I'd seen it. He just wanted to watch the trailer. He wanted to watch the trailer with me. So whenever we get to that part and it ends, I mean, he put it the best way. What is the context of that? I just, I just have to wonder. You know, is it really that he's being shut down? Is it some other? Th- I just, I don't understand. Well, that's what I love uh, about it is that you don't know the context of any scene because we don't right. know the story. We don't know what's happening. Like c- case in point, the last shot of the entire trailer got me the most. It, like, we've seen a lot of shots with people holding like sabers up to their face you have one side of their face lit with the color of the lightsaber then you have the other half of the face lit to whatever environment that they're in there was something about that shot it felt different it was the way daisy really was very subtle in her emotions and the light coming off the lightsaber it's just like it was so great i have no idea what the context is she could have just murdered someone and right. cried and, tears and of joy and it's even weirder in the context of that sizzle reel thing that they did for D23, where at the end of it, they show some images, and she's got the double-sided red-bladed lightsaber, and she has this mean look on her face. Is that her? Is that somebody else? What's going on there? And then, of course, you know, with the new context of this trailer, where I don't know if it's the climax, because we don't know what's going on, but she's got that lightsaber now and what's clearly a very loaded moment it's it's the the marketing for this movie has been genius and i i just i love i love how they're intentionally just throwing us off every time well and i Uh, I think it's because you and i are uh, i mean it's because we're so invested into these universes whether it be this or or marvel which is a great segue into the first news uh topic but it's a mm -hmm. it's a great um it, these are great marketing tactics because we're so invested with these universes. I don't want to know what's going on. I want to go in knowing as little as possible. So I kind of like the fact they're doing it with Star Wars. They're doing it with Marvel where it's just like they they craft these trailers in such a way to where like they just want to let other people know that it exists. And they just want to excite people that want to see it even further. I mean that's the only yeah. purpose of these trailers because they don't – 
They don't give anything away for anything. And I think it's genius because they know people are going to see it. Um, but it also keeps the, the mystery intact. That way, when you're watching that thing kind of unfold and you get to certain points, like in The Last Jedi with, with what happened to Snoke or, you know, the, the final battle or, you know, um, just anything, everything catches you off guard. And that's why yeah. I, I love these experiences. And that's why I told you and that's why I told everyone that I told the world. That's why The Last Jedi was so great because it was bold, it was ambitious, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I think that is the, the and it, magic and it set of you movies. And it sets you completely off kilter. It, it, I'm telling you, as a as a lifelong diehard Star, Star Wars fan, I said it in my review. In our review, I said, I have no idea what's going to happen. There's no... There's no prerequisite. There's no precedent for any of these events. The entire third act of the Last Jedi is un is unknown territory, unknown completely. There's a there's an enormous paradigm shift in all the roles of the characters as we know them, and so how's that going to inform the story going forward? It is it's it's fascinating, and I love the fact that by the ninth and final episode. It's the series has reinvented itself. It's it's reinvented itself, and um, I guess part of this week I should say is because of the trailer and because I watched Last Jedi, I then wasted millions of brain cells watching this video on YouTube. And I'm sorry, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name the person because I don't want to call out people. I don't want to I don't want to draw like death threats to our comment section. But um, I watched this video of of the Last Jedi being a complete cinematic failure. Or something like that, and it's just a bunch of really stupid and and, and idiotic points. But then I fixed that by watching this um, this YouTube channel called Cinema Wins. Yes, not Cinema Sins. That's another thing. This came because of that channel, but it's a much better channel, and it's everything great about the Last Jedi. And it's a forty-two minute video, about twice as long as any other video this guy does, and he goes through entirely uh, defending every you know nearly everything about this movie. And it's beautiful, really, really good. Um, those are two things that I did watch this week. Just because I was curious on the bad video, I was like, okay, what am I going to hear in this? I heard absolutely nothing of any sort of merit, and uh, it was 25 minutes of, of nonsense. And then I watched this other thing that was, um, that was just excellent. It was an excellent defense of the movie. Pretty much that's how I feel about it, uh, if anybody wants to go watch that. Um, and especially in the last half, the 20 minutes of um, well, what he does is basically he goes through the movie sort of like CinemaSins does. He gives it a win every time something cool happens or some performance uh, comes through or whatever. And he counts the wins and then at the end he does that. But he also has uh, – I, I think unlike the CinemaSins videos, he has this sort of period where he gives a kind of little recap of his own thoughts you know, outside of a list of – or uh, outside of like I'm going to give it a win. Um, he just gives a little, a little, uh, conclusion about his own thoughts. And this one was 20 minutes. It was half the video and it was him talking about, you know, I'm sorry that people thought that this ruined star Wars for them. But for me, it does exactly what the empire strikes back did, which is completely set you off kilter, completely reinvent the series. And I think that the only reason that we, that people are kind of unfamiliar with that feeling is because they grew up with. Empire Strikes Back. They weren't there when it, you know, because it's usually the youngest people who dislike this, this, uh, the Last Jedi most, and or the younger fans. And yeah, I just it's great. And I and I think 
that's a great video. Uh, go watch that. But it really sums up what I think is so special about The Last Jedi is that it completely reinvents the series. And yeah, so anyway, can't wait to see what happens. Uh, let's get into some news. Let's get into some news, Chase. All right, guys, on occasion, and this is probably going to draw a lot of comments to our uh, to our show, so as in, in advance, I, I apologize to Chase for fielding a lot of these, but all right, it's rant time from Joel. Um, and I'll let, obviously let Chase respond because he usually is on the same page as me with this. <sighs> I didn't think that we would need to talk about this, because, but, but it's become such a news story that I was just like, you know what, it's time. Let's talk about this. So recently, while he's on this media circuit for the Irishman, uh, Martin Scorsese was asked a question about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and he a- and he answered by saying that he feels that the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the movies in it, are not cinema. That's what he said. They're not cinema, but more specifically, that they more reasonably or more um not reasonably more accurately kind of remind him of amusement parks right so he feels that they are amusement park movies and this caused an uproar uh it was not helped by a lot of other people chiming in but we'll get to there we'll, we'll get there so here's the thing folks all right we can have some we can have two thoughts at the same time in our brain about this. One, yes, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is cinema. That's there's no there's no getting around it. Cinema is a moving picture. So that's all it is. I mean it's it's kind of a special word that people came up with to describe it, you know, through language and, and all of that, through the uh, through foreign through the kind of foreign words. We call it cinema because of because of kino and kinema and all of that. Right? So it's cinema. It's a moving picture. So it obviously is. So what does Scorsese mean by this? All right. Here's what Scorsese means. Not that it that they aren't movies because he knows that they're movies. But what he means by cinema to me is something that is extremely personal to the filmmakers that resonates emotionally with the audience for reasons other than the reasons that blockbusters resonate with audiences. There is a difference between Ant-Man and the Wasp and the Lighthouse. Let's just pick two, right? There's a difference between those two things. Just logistically, commercially, financially, economically, all of that. There's a difference between them. So basically... To use those two, he's he's basically saying that the lighthouse to him, in this example, is cinema, whereas Ant-Man and the Wasp is more of an amusement park. Now, I realize I'm probably digging him into a deeper grave, but it is cinema, but for him, it isn't meaningful. So it's clear that he meant this, right? Absolutely clear from the from the get-go. He probably didn't enjoy being asked that question, let's just say. He... He doesn't really like the movies. He hasn't really given a lot of them a shot. So that's, of course, what made people angry. Um, but he doesn't – it's just not his bag, right? So this caused an uproar. This caused a lot of Marvel fanboys 
to come out in protest almost of Martin Scorsese's existence as a filmmaker. They feel that he doesn't know anything about what's happening right now. They feel that he's this old this old man who's out of touch. One of the greatest directors ever to have lived is out of touch and irrelevant. Completely obsolete, all of that, right? So this is a problem. Um, and it becomes a problem later on when somebody else chimes in with a bit more of a comprehensive take on this. But I'm going to go through this. So after this uproar, Francis Ford Coppola was asked and said that, in fact, Scorsese didn't go far enough, uh, that Marvel movies were despicable and that they basically weren't even movies. So that's a little bit too far um, in terms of Coppola. It's his opinion, but I feel like it's him just kind of exaggerating, defending his friend a bit and kind of coming out of this not looking too great. Because then what happened is a bunch of directors started chiming in on this topic. So we had Ken Loach, hates him. Fernando Moraes, who directed, um, uh, I think, City of God, Constant Gardener, stuff like that, hates him. And then you had people like John Favreau uh, and James Gunn kind of hitting back with their own takes. Now, Gunn was completely unreasonable with saying that, you know, uh, I'm I'm deeply and personally hurt by this, um, you know, because he's the one who directed two of the Guardians movies and and he's directing the Suicide Squad and then and then Guardians three and anyway he's he's got business to do with Marvel of course so of course he's going to be quite um, mad at this but John Favreau was a little bit more reserved he said this is their this is their opinion they have earned the right to this opinion through their years and years and years of, uh, of filmmaking. And so that's what, that's the response that I was, that I was hinting at. And so I kind of wanted to get Chase's thoughts on this, but I also wanted to say that it's, it's okay for even these guys to give their thoughts on Marvel, but you know what I think is not okay, Chase? I think what is not okay is asking them about it. Using your because these are these are journalists asking them about it. These are people, you know, press press members at conferences, press people in interviews, asking them to weigh in on a subject that is as fleeting in the long, you know, uh, history of uh, of cinema, a fleeting kind of, you know period of time where we're enjoying this big long um extended cinematic universe there are filmmakers who have grown up away from the the limelight and regular hollywood uh business and have made their living doing personal meaning personal projects that are meaningful to them so what does it have anything to do with Mar the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Is it just because it's popular and so people want to know? Because this this really – and I'm going to give my joke here because I, I had a joke um, that, I, that I posted in response to this. So one of the most notorious recluses in, in, the, cinema, in the cinema world, a guy who is also extremely rude apparently, just not, not a nice person on a humanistic level – 
What I've, this is what I've heard. He's only given one interview, I think, like in the last 25 years, uh, is Jean-Pierre Léo. Uh, he's the star of The 400 Blows from Francois Truffaut, and he's done very little work as an adult, um, relatively speaking. I think he's he's had some like cameo roles and stuff, but uh, I think he he won an award for acting in a movie a few years ago a few years ago called The Death of Louis the Fourteenth that I heard was quite uh, <laughs> not not at all in the mainstream. And um, you know, so my joke was that basically. I was a journalist. I was in the deep dark of a, a nameless jungle somewhere in at the at the very like in the in the uh, the farthest reaches of the planet to ask Jean-Pierre Leo his thoughts about Ant-Man and the Wasp because that's what it's gotten to now. That's what we're doing. That's what that's what journalists in the Hollywood entertainment journalism business are asking these directors about instead of their own work. Ask Martin Scorsese questions that are relevant to streaming he's been asked about streaming a lot to netflix the whole netflix scene the whole streaming scene what is it doing to movies and he has thoughts about that why not interrogate those why do you have to ask about the marvel cinematic universe and anyway so that's my rant i feel like uh just to get it out there i'm i'm kind of curious what people's thoughts are be respectful in the comments, please. But if you want to comment, go ahead. Tell us what you think about all of this. Do you think it's fair of entertainment journalists to ask these directors these questions? Do you think that it's important to know Scorsese, Coppola, uh, you know, Ken Loach? How, 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 what do you think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Is it important to any sort of discourse surrounding this universe? So, Chase, I, I don't even know if there's really a news item here, but just let's let's are we on the same page here absolutely um <laughs> you know when i first heard about martin scorsese going marvel is not cinema i was like okay whatever and as it kept going down this like rabbit hole and they get all these different directors to get their opinion on a movie franchise and they're all saying it's terrible and people are just going crazy i still go okay cool like I don't understand people getting up in a hizzy. Even if Martin Scorsese came to my house, burned my whole Marvel collection, and walked out the door saying it was trash, yeah, I'd be upset because that's a lot of money. But and I, I wouldn't get upset with them because that that's his opinion. And it disturbs me that people are just so up in arms about being angry at this whole situation. And to what Joel said about reporters pressuring them like that going like we know you hate these movies like can you give us like a really good like headline that we can run with like that's disgusting what are we doing like that's not your job it's it's literally the entertainment journalist version of entrapment almost because basically right. what they're what they're doing is we know that you're old and you're probably out of out of completely out of uh out of sync with regular you know like life right now so give us a reason to to report that you're old and out of sync with life right now and tell us what you think about this new fun shiny thing that we like and oh you don't like it okay cool uh we're just gonna we're gonna tell you this because here's the thing and i think that this is actually very important there are two directors who are no longer living who if they were asked about this they probably would have said yeah we like it and you know who those two directors are chase who one is stanley kubrick and i and i'm, I'm gonna defend myself here in a second 
The other is Jean-Luc Godard. And now there's different reasons for this, but, but Kubrick, uh, remember to be possibly the best director of all time. I, I would say that that's probably fair to, to say there's, there's a few people in that, in that, uh, um, in that category. But I, I, I think it's fair to say that generally speaking, Kubrick is kind of remembered for being the best. It's either him, Bergman, you know, there's, there's a few in that conversation, but I would say that Kubrick's probably at or near the top. Liked to eat hamburgers and watch sitcoms to relax. So the director of, you know, The Shining and Full Metal Jacket and 2001 was a fan of, of the mainstream. He would go to the movies every week. He saw stuff. He saw everything. The dude devoured movies. He would have seen all of these movies, first of all. And I think he would have liked some of them. Probably the ones with more of a director's kind of stamp on them. You know, there's there's a couple that we can that we can admit or not. <laughs> you know, super like um, have have a super big authorial stamp. Thor: The Dark World feels like some random dude made it, right? Probably wouldn't have liked that. But you think about it, well, in the Thor series, Thor Ragnarok, he might have liked more. It has a sense of humor. It has an actual sense of director uh, of directorial uh, um, personality. He probably would have liked that one. And so Godard, I think it was Godard. It was either him or Alain René, who is uh, – uh, they're, they're both French directors from the same era. I think it might have been René. Um, actually went to Stan Lee and begged to direct a, a comic book movie. So clearly – and I'm pretty sure it was René. So it may have been, it may have been that Godard, Godard wouldn't, have, wouldn't have liked it. But whatever the case um, – or no, wait, is, I don't know if Jean-Luc Godard's dead yet. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. But, yeah, I, I just feel like some of these directors that we all we all love, or that are loved from a certain period of time in filmmaking history, would have been kinder to this than people are realizing. And that's because directors contain multitudes. It's it, Scorsese doesn't like them, but somebody else does, and that's it. That's the, the, there's no story here. And so to kind of corner all of these directors is despicable, as you're saying. It's it's despicable. And it, it's know, irresponsible as a journalist. Yeah. Like if you were there for an Irishman press junket, I think the only question that could even be remotely um going outside of the Irishman conversation is like you said with like streaming and like Netflix and stuff. Cause that's huge for Scorsese. And so I think that is an appropriate question to ask because it deals with the Irishman and it, you know, getting his thoughts on that and uh, everything. I think that is uh, applicable to that situation, but to just go out of your way and just be like, Oh, uh, do you like Marvel movies? They're not cinema. And then you move on to the next question. And that's the only thing that people, you know, attack him for. It's like, why are people making this into a big deal? I, people have different movie opinions all the time. There are people I currently follow on Twitter that despise Marvel movies. They despise most superhero movies. Do I care? No, I do not. Like, it's okay to have your opinion. And Joel and I have been very venomous towards certain movies before. Sure. But that's our opinion. But we never go out of our way to, like, tear down people, like, on a personal level or, like, you know... um, do any of that like that's that's just stupid if if all the directors that joel and i love to death if if they 
literally come to our face, spit in it. They hit us in, uh, say, like, Marvel movies are trash. Or if they go to Joel and, like, Star Wars is trash, like, okay, cool. Can we sit down and have a discussion about it? I don't, like, it, it does no one uh, uh, in goodwill to, like, stand up and start yelling into the void about this. It is, it's stupid. And, and these are children that are attacking a man that's, like, five times older than them. And who is a master at the craft and saying that he doesn't know cinema? Please sit down and uh, go enjoy your bowl of cereal. I like it's just cereal. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's just uh, it's just so stupid. And maybe it's because Joel and I are older and we're not teenagers and we're not in our early twenties anymore. And yeah, Joel and I like we we like you know um, sometimes we like stupid movies or uh, you know dumb movies or whatever that's the name of the game it's whatever appeals to appeals to but like it's just like when joel and i are seeing this from the outside in and we see all these people who are just attacking scorsese and all these directors for comments that they made on movies it's just what do you do you have that much free time like why are you yelling at these people who are obviously better at this craft than most people will ever be in their entire lives and you're going to sit there and tell them that their their opinions are not validated. Now, I agree with Joel that I think Coppola took it a little too far in saying they're despicable. I mean, if that's your opinion, that's cool. But, like, let's let's chill out a little bit. Um, I would like to know why they're despicable. Um, you know, uh, I would love to have conversations about them, uh, about all, all of this, but um, in a very respectful manner. But I hate the fact that journalists are running these headlines – just for the sake of clicks, and it's just, it's irresponsible, it's stupid, and here's a wild thing, folks, this is really wild, Joe, I don't know if you know this, this is really wild, if people have different opinions on movies, it's 100% okay, like, you're gonna survive. No, it's not. Joel, you're going to survive, it's okay. Uh, Joel and I disagree all the time, does it make sense for me to, like, go to Joel's house, knock on his door, and, like, start yelling at him like no it does not um it, you know we we will jokingly uh tear each other down but we do it in a very entertaining manner because that's that's just what people like but we don't do it in real life but these are people i hear they're literally losing their their crap over this and it's like guys chill um and like i said if scorsese literally came to my house and like told me marvel is trash as i was watching one of them i'd be like okay like expand upon it let's talk about it um it's just the whole thing is stupid um and i really hope and especially with the whole like people involving bob Iger now it's like guys just stop with it stop drawing this thing out uh, further than it needs to be you know it's just it's really it's embarrassing at this point because like with the whole uh scorsese situation a, a one and done situation i would have been like cool that's his opinion. Let's move on. But then they keep drawing out, asking directors, then asking the CEO of Disney and like him basically calling all of them out. And like Stern has to ask Robert Downey Jr. and Paul Rudd on his his radio show. And it's like, guys, let's please stop. Um, if I would, if if Joel and I had the ever glorious. Yeah, oh, and by the way, I love how Robert Downey Robert Downey Jr. didn't bite. No, because he, he was just like yeah okay, he cool. he he was a he was a trooper he was just like ah eh, it's his opinion and yeah, you know he's I, he's been in movies he he could have 
he could have been given some sort of marching orders from Marvel, always defend us. But, you know, and, and I think that some of Bob Iger's words <laughs> kind of, into, uh, you know. Paul, Paul Rudd least... had the a same kind of reaction where he was like, okay, I mean, it's, it's kind of their opinion. He was like, they play in cinema. I, I think they're cinema. Um, but if that's what they think, that's what they think. And if, if Joel and I ever had, like, the amazing opportunity to interview Martin Scorsese, do you think we would ever squander our opportunity by asking him a stupid question like that? Marvel, then, Marvel would be yeah, the last thing on yeah. my mind. Uh, hey, hey, uh, <laughs> Ma- Martin Scorsese, uh, Marvel. What do you think about Marvel? The state of Marvel, the state of movies. It's like, that's so stupid. I would, it, I, I would be, if, if Joel did that, I would be so angry with him. I would have to, like, stop the podcast and, like, yell at him for an hour straight and be like, we just had one of the best filmmakers of all time on our small little podcast for an interview, and that's what you wanted to ask him? Get out of here with that. So, Hey, Martin Scorsese, what did you think of WandaVision? Did you yeah. watch WandaVision? Yeah, what do you okay. think of the Disney Plus shows? It's just like, just give it a rest. Like, you're supposed to uh, – it's just uh. – I would – here's the thing. is like bringing up Disney Plus. I would actually like to I – would, I would like to hear some of their thoughts on Disney Plus. Just, just what what's happening over there? With, I mean, what is their thoughts on the Disney Fox merger? You know, that would be an interesting thing to ask. And and, I, and I'm not saying like Disney Plus is completely out of bounds to ask them about, just because it does tie into the streaming kind of culture going on. Right but now. see, that that goes back to what I was saying was since like The Irishman is probably the biggest thing Netflix has ever presented us, like. Doing the streaming questions is totally acceptable because Martin Scorsese is a director I never would have even imagined that he would go down this path for distribution for one of his movies. And now that he's done it, it is totally acceptable to ask him about the – because he might have had a change of heart. And so that would be an Mm -hmm. interesting conversation to have with him, especially with uh, him being at the age that he is and him being in the industry as long as he has. There's appropriate questions to ask people of that caliber and to work it into modern, you know, distribution. I mean, and, here, or... and here's the thing. Like, it's all about, it's all about kind of some of these people that you kind of wish you had the thoughts of this stuff on. Like I wish Gene Siskel were still alive because he's, he's just one of the most intelligent people about the film industry that I know of. And I would like to, I would have liked to hear his thoughts about where all this is going. Would he have been, uh, welcoming of that uh, would ebert because obviously ebert died before well before any of this came up and before even netflix had their first movie uh, original movie is a couple years before that so i would love to know some of these things um and obviously martin scorsese is one of is one of those people he's from this kind of certain period of time where you know, there was just kind of this traditional kind of view of what movies were, and now there's a slight shift. You know, movies don't have to be in theaters anymore for people to enjoy them, and now there's this streaming service. People are spending less going to the theaters, and now we have this shift happening. And so obviously, if you're a filmmaker of any sort of intelligence, you you have to at least look into this in some way, you know, like – you know what? What is streaming going to do? Is it going to? Am I going to uh, be somebody who um, buys into this? Am I going to reject it? Because there have been some directors who who are still kind of on the train of it's not movies, but clearly Scorsese had a turnaround. So it just begs the question of some of these people that did not live to see this happen. What would be their thoughts? But I'm not 
I am certainly not wondering would any you know I, I occasionally wonder what would Gene Siskel think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe right but I don't I don't think of you know what would Truffaut think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe it's the last thing on my mind they're filmmakers Gene Siskel is a film critic different kind of thing different it's kind of thing it's literally like asking our grandparents Joel hey what do you think of the Marvel movies we're like what's that I don't know what that is if we right. showed them one they'd be like that was terrible because that's not what they that's not what they grew up on it's okay like right. it, it, but I think what this boils down to is that you should not care what they think. It is their opinion. And two, if you're a reporter, please be responsible with your questions. That's all I ask. And if you are, if you are an actual adult and a grown-up, um, you will look at that situation like this. And th- that's that's all there is to it. I don't know why people will draw this out or um, use this for clicks or views or whatever. It's, it's, it's stupid. And the only reason Joel and I wanted to bring it up on this show is and this late in the game is because it spiraled out of control. If yeah. it was once again a literal comment that someone made um, in a press even, conference, even and, a week ago, this was a thing, and I didn't bring it up because right. it hadn't it hadn't blown out of proportion. This, this I just I, I I felt like this was the perfect opportunity to tell people to stop it. Just yeah. please stop it. Yeah. If, if they want to talk about this uh, in length and just completely bash this franchise, go ahead. Because guess what? I'm still going to go pay to see it. And guess what? I'm still going to go pay to see Martin Scorsese movies. So it doesn't really matter. It's just yep. – oh, it's so stupid. There's, there's room for both of these people. Right? There's room for both. Yeah. There's yeah. room for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and there's room for Andre Tarkovsky. And that's because all of it is cinema. So Martin Scorsese is wrong when he says it isn't cinema. But he isn't wrong – in the intention that he was talking about, because it's just not for him. So for him, it doesn't translate to the meaningful stuff that he makes. He thinks that that's cinema. Now, is he is he factually wrong? Sure. Is he emotionally wrong? No, he's not. And yeah, it's just exactly. So, and also, if you are one of those people who have never seen a Martin Scorsese movie and are talking about how he doesn't know what he what he's doing, just 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 stop. Just stop. Those are the people I'm addressing because our listeners are yeah. smart. They've at least right. seen one Scorsese movie. The people that yeah. are just yelling into the void that have never seen any of these directors' movies, they need to stop because they're the yep. ones embarrassing the themselves. Pe- the people listening to this are, are really, really intelligent uh, listeners who know what we're talking about and also Robert Pattinson fans because of the title of our episode. But uh, <laughs> because they, they, they pay attention to everything Robert Pattinson. But yes, uh, exactly. And I think um, – it's it's just it's just nonsense. So, all right, folks, uh, I'm going to quickly talk about a couple bits of news, and then I'm going to get into uh, some award stuff. Uh, yes, there is an awards body that has um, had their say. I'm going to get to that in a second. So the first thing, uh, really quick, is that of course Disney was uh, eventually going to distance themselves from Johnny Depp in a way that wasn't just not casting him as Jack Sparrow anymore. They are rebooting the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, with a sixth movie that is going to... Um, I don't know if it's going to include Jack Sparrow. We don't know yet. But um, it, it is happening. And it is happening from from writer Craig Mazin. Now, uh, Craig Mazin is a name that at one point people knew because of comedies. Um, he's a guy who's behind like... The Hangover and superhero movie and all of that. And, of course, the star has risen this year because of Chernobyl. And um, he is going to be co-writing a screenplay for this particular movie with Ted Elliott, who also wrote the first four Pirates movies. He he departed for the, uh, the fifth one, but um, 
He wrote the the first four, and also Mazin has a writing credit on the new Charlie's of An- Charlie's Angels movie that's about to come out. So obviously he's kind of in the sweet spot of um, being able to leverage a, a job like this. It's going to be very interesting to see how this turns out because I love the Verbinski Pirates. The other two, no, but I love the Verbinski Pirates. And so if they can recapture some of that inner, inner, uh, that energy, even if it's with a you know with a different actor, then then I'm all for it. So we'll see what happens. I know that this was going to happen like once upon a time with. Um, who was it? Uh, it was Reese and Wernick, right? I think they were they were hired to reboot this at one point, but they left the project and it's now over to Elliot and Mason. So should be interesting to see what happens there. The other thing, is I think that I've maybe talked about this before, but some details are coming together. So you know, later this year we've got Bombshell coming out uh, that's going to be about the Roger Ailes um, allegations and breaking them and all of that, all that happening. So now there's going to be a movie that circles around the reporting, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporting uh, of the Weinstein, the whole Weinstein story from Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey um, and their editor, Rebecca, Rebecca Corbett. And those will be the three main characters of the film. This is going to be sort of in the vein, apparently, of All the President's Men, which, hey, is probably one of the great journalism movies, maybe the great journalism movie of all time. So not bad, you know, trying to uh, recapture something like that. Obviously, Spotlight did a similar thing a couple years ago. That was a great movie. Uh, they've hired a writer uh, for this. It's going to be Re- Rebecca Lankiewicz, who wrote Colette, uh, a movie that I actually – I think I have a screener for, uh, and I, I never watched it. But I will just to get myself familiar with Lankiewicz because I'm otherwise not. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. we'll see how that turns out. I, I'm certainly excited about the the uh, the possibilities there because it's obviously a very intense, you know, uh, wide wide ranging story. There's going to be a lot of people playing other people in it, so maybe more jobs for that uh, <laughs> that makeup artist for the bomb for bombshell. Uh, you never know. So yeah, it should be very interesting to see how this all comes together. So Chase, what are your thoughts on these two things? Yes. So uh, the pirates thing. Why? Just stop. I, I, I'm done with it. Uh, I didn't really like the last one. I'm, I'm with I'm with Joel. I really uh, enjoy the Verbinski um, Pirates films. A real great sense of adventure and just a lot of fun, especially for a movie that is based on a uh, <clears throat> theme park ride. Um, it turned out to be a pretty fun experience, and the first three kind of dominated the um, you know pop culture at that time, and so I was. I was on board for the franchise, but then four and five, just especially number five, it, uh, such a waste of Javier Bardem. I just, uh, I didn't really like that one. Comple- but, completely agree there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, but with Craig Mazin, this guy has got one of the most fascinating, like writing careers I've ever seen because he's very well versed into blockbuster, um, film of, you know, script, screenwriting and, you know, he was a part of like the Hangover movies and some other questionable comedies that we won't mention. But he's, you know, uh, he he won an Emmy off of Chernobyl, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he did. So he I won think the I, writing. Yeah, I think uh, Mason won for writing on Chernobyl. So we know that he can do, you know, drama uh, quite what, uh, quite well. And so, um, 
yeah, if he wants to go back and do a, a blockbuster film, go for it, man. Uh, hopefully it's uh, it's great. And I think coming off of the heels of Chernobyl, I think um, as far as a business move, that's a great play from Disney because he just won his Emmy off of one of the hottest HBO limited series of all time. And he he is his career before that was uh, in blockbuster screenwriting, so that makes sense to me. Um, so we'll see. I'm not enthusiastic about another Pirates of the Caribbean movie because I don't really know what they're going to do considering it is a reboot. But, you know, you got Mason involved. This uh, industry is all about what, you, what you've done for me last, and I think his last thing was pretty brilliant. So... I'll give it a shot. I'm I'm just a little. What I I will say I will say I didn't bring this up, but I just thought of it. What I kind of wish they they won't do is do this, and people start looking forward to it, and then they kind of um, cave in on their chances to do something else with the whole like um, amusement park movie, literal (laughs) amusement park movie. with Jungle Cruise, because if they're going to try to make a series out of that, they might be, I don't know, undercutting it with this, which people just already know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see them go go head-to-head in some way, because they're obviously going to be compared to each other just on the basis of the fact that they're, they're based on rides. And so if Jungle Cruise is this big special thing that kind of reminds of the first one, the first Pirates... You know, they'll want to do sequels to that, so maybe, at least. So how are they going to fit in a new Pirates series? Are they going to do this on Disney Plus? Yeah, there's there's a lot of questions surrounding that one. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that, that's a great point. I, for, I totally forgot that Jungle Cruise is also a theme park attraction movie, uh, which in this case, Martin Scorsese is correct. Those two in particular. That's a literal theme, theme park, park ride. So, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, uh, he is not wrong there. But um, he's not. But hey, you know what? They're fun. Yeah, they're, they're fun. I, yeah. I like and, the pirate, and, and the I have a movies. feeling too that he probably wouldn't call them cinema. But who knows? He, he might like some of these things. Like he might like enjoy them as as in you know. The, 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 yeah, that whole conversation. Whatever, but yeah, that whole controversy could have boiled down to Scorsese having a bad day and something that he just said that he. You yeah. know, uh, wasn't like that vicious about it. He was just like, they're not for me, but he used a specific word, uh, whatever. But yeah, uh, we'll see how the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, reboot uh, pans out. The Harvey Weinstein thing, yeah, uh, I think it was pretty inevitable that this was going to happen. And he always keeps coming up in the news because he's been gone away for quite some time because he's been in, in hideaway. And then now this video is blowing up of him getting called out by a comedian. In a New York bar, I think literally just yesterday or like two days ago. Yeah, and, and then that person was booed, which is just yeah, disgusting. Which is stupid. Yeah, I mean she's so she's literally calling out a sexual predator, and then some jabronis and in the audience men, are like, and all the men. You didn't hear any women booing. No, booing that. The, the women were cheering because they yeah. were like, "Thank you for taking this this stupid, disgusting piece of garbage uh, down to the ground." And the fact that he's able to just walk around and sit. In a in a bar like this, just out in the open, and nothing has happened legally yet is appalling. It's amazing. And and you know, Evan Rachel Wood just tweeted within the last day, Felicity Huffman went to went to jail before Harvey Weinstein. Now she then clarified, it's not that Felicity Huffman shouldn't have gone to jail. It's just that apparently that's where our priorities are. Right. And 
it's the, the, it's, the, the yeah, whole it's yeah disgusting. the whole Felicity Huffman thing is a separate conversation because she was for a 14, 14 day sentence she got out in ten she should have been there for the rest of her life uh, considering what they did but yeah that's and the length the of time that it took you know all the stuff yeah but still though like just the yeah. fact that that the man didn't go to jail yeah it's, and it's, the the woman did it's 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 not a great look yeah i, so. I hate uh, listen i this country has a lot of great things going for it but i absolutely hate our justice system it just it yeah. never works when you want it to work and you're like what what is the deal here so but yeah it was inevitable for a movie about weinstein to come out um i think it would be pretty funny uh if someone um bought the weinstein company from uh just its shareholders and then released it under the Weinstein company uh, logo uh, just as like a self-sabotage. Uh, absolutely hilarious. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if I told you guys this, but I watched the, the Hulu documentary about Harvey Weinstein and all these actresses that, um, you know, were assaulted by him and everything. And, you know, regardless of if you think these actresses just did it, to get the get apart or if these people are just trying to move along in their career that's not unheard of people do that all the time in business you know sometimes people will you know uh do that to further the career and if it's consensual it's it's whatever it's weird but it's whatever it's, it's okay the problem with Weinstein is that he took advantage of people that said no and were like oh, this is getting really disgusting and going way too far. I don't want to be a part of this. And he forces himself on them. That's that's the big difference here. So if they went in with the mindset of being cozy with him to climb up the ladder, then so be it. But it's the way he went about it and the way he treated people. And it's just, once again, I'm still baffled that he's able to walk around, but uh, here we are. Um, but yeah, making a movie based on him, was uh was bound to happen. Uh, we're gonna get a movie on him. We're gonna get a movie on our current president. Uh, we're gonna get a movie on probably uh, Epstein at some point. It's just that's what we do. Maybe even maybe even Spacey. Yeah, even know. Spacey. Like th- this yeah. is what we do in this country, and we, you know we, to, lit- we litigate these things through art. Yeah, and I, I think to some degree it's it's appropriate because you it, it they work as cautionary tales. They work. Um, as just a, a way to show people what these people were like, uh, if people were been in denial or people don't know about it. So there's benefits to doing it. Um, I, I am a little like on a marketing or business perspective, I am a little wary on it just cause it's, it is weird that we have to turn this into a profit, uh, and glorify these people. But at the same time, it's also cautionary tale. It's a, you know, it's it's a very very tricky thing. I'm still gonna probably see them just because um, it's like Joel said. Like we, this is what we do. We do it through art, and uh, Joel and I are cinephiles. This is what we do. So, um, yeah, that uh, makes total sense that they uh, this movie would go forward. Hello. Oh man, uh, <laughs> I I ended the uh, the conversation and I I, I thought that was a sorry really... sorry about that guys. <laughs> oh wow, I I yeah I, I'm I, here. Um, so yeah, I, Joel I had a stroke. Uh, I guess when you turn thirty, this is what happens. <laughs> guys, I don't know what corn peters are. I don't know how to work them. I'm kidding. All right, so our last bit of news is a bit of awards news. Uh, there has been an awards body already speak. Yes, there is one this early in the year. Um, it's not a super 
important one, but it is something that puts some names on the uh, sort of on the agenda of the critics. It, it, it gets it gets some people recognized or or on the map, if you will, and that's the Gotham Awards. Now, no, this is not a fake awards body because it because it's in Gotham City. I don't know why it's called Gotham Awards. To be honest, um, I've never looked into that, but it is uh, an important one for independent films. Yeah, I, I would I would say uh, just before Joel continues, I would say Gotham and the Spirit Awards are probably the most um, in, in, indicative of the, uh, the independent circuit. Yeah, exactly. And this really puts, a, in fact, it, it, this probably works more toward the indie spirits, if anything. But uh, and put some names on the map for them. Um, I know that, in fact, yeah, because I was on the the voting the voting body for the winners uh, of the indie spirits a couple a few years ago, twenty fifteen. And they did really kind of pimp out a lot of Gotham Award nominees uh, as um, in terms of like uh, on the little screeners that they sent. They they mentioned like somebody was a Gotham Award winner or a Gotham Award nominee. So, yeah, probably works toward the indie spirits, if anything else. Uh, but it did have its first or the first say of of like, you know, what movies are should you look at? Um, and so we have some best feature and best um, screenplay nominees that are really interesting. Uh, so for best feature, the nominees were the farewell hustlers, marriage story, uncut gems and waves. Um, of course, two, no, three, three, a 24 movies in this one Netflix movie. And what was hustlers? Uh, Warner. No, Oh, that's a sticks sticks. That's right. Okay. So I feel like it's probably going to be the marriage story. Honestly, um, and the same thing with director. Um, I'm sorry. Wait, no, it's uh, no, there's no director. I'm sorry. There's a breakthrough director award though. Uh, the break, the Bingham Ray break, breakthrough director award uh, included Laude Clermont Tournier for the for the Mustang. That's a tough name to say. Um, a movie that I have not seen yet. I've heard really good things about it. I've also not seen Burning Cane. I think is coming to Netflix in just a couple of weeks. Uh, Philip Umans, the director for that, was nominated. And then three movies that are real just gems this year. Uh, Kent Jones was nominated for Diane. Love that movie. Still on my top ten. Uh, Joe Talbot for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Also on my top ten. Olivia Wilde for Booksmart uh, was nominated for this Breakthrough Director Award. Um, and not a movie in my top ten. I know it's probably still in yours, but yeah, fantastic job from her. So it's really interesting. Uh, let's see, screenplay kind of has three has three movies in common with uh, best feature. No, two 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 movies in common, and that's Lulu Wang being nominated for the farewell. Noah Baumbach for uh, Marriage Story, and then Jimmy Fails, Joe Talbot, and Rob Reichert were nominated for the Last Black Man in San Francisco. Terrell Alvin McCraney got a mention for High Flying Bird, and then this one kind of surprised me. Um, Ari Aster for Midsommar, um, or Midsummer, however you want to say it. They say Midsummer in the movie, and uh, Ari Aster says Midsommar. I don't know which one it is, but whatever. I'm, I'm going to choose the director's way of saying it, um, sort of like with uh, with Chase when he surprised me with that. Um, so yeah, there's that. I, again, I think that it's going to go to Marriage Story. I think Baumbach's got this. Uh, best Actor, we've got Adam Driver in Marriage Story. Adam Sandler and in Uncut Gems, Willem Dafoe and The Lighthouse. Those are those are pretty uh, expected. I think uh, you could call them expected. 
the two that kind of surprised me were Andre Holland and High Flying Bird. I didn't anticipate that that performance to come back around, although I'm glad it did. And then Aldous Hodge in Clemency rather than Brian Banks. Of course, Brian Banks was more uh, uh, mainstream than than Clemency is, but yeah, very interesting to note that he got he got a mention for that. Same thing in actress Alfre Woodard for Clemency. Uh, Mary Kay Place for Diane. That's a great performance. Aquafina in The Farewell. Um, Elizabeth Moss in Her Smell. That was the best thing about that movie. Um, the same thing with Florence Pugh in Midsommar. Uh, really interesting actor, actress slate there. Um, breakthrough actor. This is pretty cool. This is a great category. Now, only one of them am I really not very familiar with. That's Chris Galoost, who was in a movie called Give Me Liberty. Uh, I've heard okay things about the movie. I've heard that he's really good in it, but I don't know much about the movie itself. Uh, there's also Noah Jupe in Honey Boy, or Jupe, however you say his name, Jupe, I don't know. Um, Jonathan Majors in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, interesting mention there because he's done work before, so I guess, yeah, I guess this could be a breakthrough. Um, Eschling Franciosi in The Nightingale, great, great performance. That's the one that I think could win. Uh, and then you have Julia Fox and Uncut Gems and Taylor Russell and Waves. It's interesting uh, because with the with Taylor Russell and Jonathan Majors, this is a really interesting thing. So these are two actors who are getting really good notices for these indie movies. But earlier in the year, they were both in pretty major releases. So, of course, Jonathan Majors was in Captive State, uh, that movie that I can barely remember that was on my bottom five of the year at the halfway point. Still on my list, I think um, he was he was a he was a supporting actor in that, right? But Taylor Russell, I don't know if you recognize that name, Chase, but she was in Escape Room. Oh um, my god! <laughs> yeah, she was the main girl in Escape Room. She was the one that kind of uh, uh, did she escape? I think she escapes by the end. Actually, uh, spoiler alert. And so it's just interesting to note that she kind of book into the year with that big major production. And then now is doing this, uh, waves has a, has a role in waves and clearly is going to be putting escape room behind her. <laughs> Unless of course she's in the sequel. I think that's coming out next year. Uh, but I, I doubt it. Uh, let's see. I covered most of the things. So they also did best documentary, which I can't really talk much about. I've only seen one of them. Uh, American Factory, no, I'm sorry, two of them. American Factory, we saw together at uh, Diff. Great movie. Likely could be the winner at the Oscars. I'm gonna say it's got a lot of fans. Uh, maybe not as many fans as this other one, Apollo 11, which I love. Uh, also, still on my top ten, and uh, it's gonna be between those two, I think, at the Oscars. But I think American Factory could take it. It's more, it's more relevant. It's more. Uh, hitting on the on the pulse of today. And then you have The Edge of Democracy, which is a documentary about Jair Bo, uh, Bolsonaro's presidency down in Brazil. That could be interesting. Midnight Traveler. I'm not sure what that is. Um, One Child Nation is about China's one-child policy, which is obviously going to be very um, emotional. So that's that. And then, of course, they have some TV stuff. They have Breakthrough Series Long Form. They had Chernobyl, David Makes a Man, uh, My Brilliant Friend, Unbelievable, and When They See Us. I have a feeling When They See Us will take that. I think they're, they're going to go a different way than the Emmys on this one. 
Uh, and then Breakthrough Series short form, you have uh, – is it pronounced – I guess it's pronounced penis, although it's it's uh, spelled P-E-N-1-5. And then Raimi from uh, A24 and Amazon, I think, or Hulu somewhere. Uh, Russian Doll, obviously, from Netflix. Tuka and Birdie, also from Netflix. Uh, Undone from from Amazon. This is the one with Rose of Salazar that is the uh, rotoscope technology. That should be interesting. I think that one's probably going to take that. So, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, group of nominees. I've been fascinated by the Gotham Awards for a couple of years now. Um, it was not long ago that I didn't really take them very seriously because I didn't know what they were. And because they usually are, you know, like early November when they when they come around, um, I just didn't think that I should take them seriously. And then uh, whenever I got those screeners for the Andy Spirits, whenever I voted for those winners and was watching a bunch of them, they were always kind of uh, pimping out uh, Gotham Award nominees. So clearly this does have a place in the in the. Uh, in this sort of, especially with the award seasons, the first one, um, uh, literal award season, the ones where awards are given out. This is the first one, and it's obviously right there in the middle of the general award season of uh, contenders being named. And so, yeah, lots of very interesting things. Uh, Chase, do you have any thoughts about this? Do you think any of these are going to be showing up? In the Oscars, is it going to be Marriage Story wins this and also Best Picture at the Oscars? What are you thinking over there? So I'm thinking uh, the big players in this one is are, are going to be Marriage Story, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and The Farewell. I think mm-hmm. those three are going to be the ones that are going to kind of battle it out for the big ones. Um, I would not be shocked if this is how it kind of played out. I think uh, uh, Noah Baumbach is going to uh, win for screenplay. I think mm-hmm. that is a, a, a given. Um, I think I think Marriage Story will win Best Picture. I think Aquafina will probably win for The Farewell uh, for Best Actress. Um, uh, this is tough. I think Best Actor. I think uh, I think Adam Driver is gonna. I think he's gonna sweep it. And I think this is gonna be mm-hmm. our first indication that he's gonna dominate this award season because this. Um, the the Gotham Independent Awards come out uh, December second, so it's the first one that kind of sets sets the stage for everybody. Um, for breakthrough director, um, I actually think it'll be uh, Joe Talbot for Last yeah. Black Man. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's very possible. That's very possible. Uh, I think when they see us, we'll win uh, break breakthrough series long form. Uh, I saw that one; it's phenomenal. Um. Uh, I'm looking through on my phone, so I'm kind of like switching as I go. Best breakthrough series short form, I have no uh, comment on because I didn't see any of those. Best documentary, uh, I forgot to tell you guys, I finally finished Apollo 11. Uh, it took oh. me like three months to do it because I watched I watched it in spurts uh, at work. Um, I'll sometimes have like Hulu open, Netflix or whatever, and I'll watch stuff as I'm working. And so... I, I kept getting called away to do stuff, so I just always kept forgetting, so I'd come back and watch like 10, 15 minutes at a time. Uh, that documentary is fantastic. It's mm-hmm. it's like showing you the moon landing in a whole different light, even though we've seen footage of it, we've heard about it for decades and decades and decades. Yep, was, and, the, and the, the, the kicker on this one is that we've not seen this footage. This is... This right. is previously unreleased footage, and then they they blew it up to uh, – in theaters, they blew it up to 70 millimeter, I think. Or it was a 65. It might have been 65. Yeah. And 
Yeah. It's like we were seeing it for the first time. Yeah, exactly. It was thrilling. I was like, oh my God, did they just do this two weeks ago? It's like, no, this was in the 60s, but it felt like you were watching something of today and it was uh, was amazing. And then you and I saw American Factory. uh, But I think... Yeah, I think it, it's either going to be American Factory or Apollo Eleven. Uh, if I had to pick, and I haven't even seen the other others, but those are the ones that have made the biggest um, kind of impact. Uh, did Best Actor, Actress, Breakthrough. Yeah, Breakthrough Director. I, 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 I think it's either going to be Joe Talbot. I think he's got an eighty percent chance of winning, and I think Olivia Wilde's got the wild card twenty percent. The um, Olivia Wilde card. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the Olivia Wild card. There you go. Uh, Joel coming in hot with the puns. Uh, there we go. And for the best feature, I did say Marriage Story, but I, I think that a second place, slightly good chance is the Farewell, and then I think the undercard is going to probably be Waves. Mm, um, yeah. If I had to pick Breakthrough Actor, I think it's either going to be Jonathan Majors or Noah Jupe. Um, mm. Okay. Yeah, Noah Jupe is he's really great in Honey Boy. No, no chance for for Francie Yossi from uh, from the Nightingale because oh, I, that's yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, okay, if they I, watch I, that movie, they can't they can't deny her performance. <laughs> that's true. I, I, okay, I take that back. I think uh, I think she has the best shot. I think Majors has the second best, and I think Noah Jupe is going to be the wild card. If I if I had to rank them right now and that's without seeing uncut gems and waves. So I'm just making a pure guess at this point until I see those movies, but um, that's pretty much it. But yeah, that's all of them. Uh, I, I think this is going to be, I think a main battle between marriage story, farewell and last black man in San Francisco. And unfortunately, uh, unless some miracle happens, the last black man in San Francisco is not going to have any Oscar consideration. Right. Um, a marriage story is, and the farewell is as well. But the farewell is going to be very minimal, maybe one or two categories. And I feel like marriage story is this is going to and, be, and it's and it's really only because marriage story came out is coming out now, and right. the farewell has been around for a while. That's that's the only reason. So was the last farewell black man in San Francisco? Yeah, that one's been around since around the same, around time. The same time. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, all it's going to be a twenty four, whatever yeah. it is. A twenty four Netflix. That's basically it. Yep, because exactly. if you think about it, if waves and uncut gems dominate, that's also a twenty-four. A twenty-four, so it's a- exactly. It's insane because uh, only one of those comes from a studio that released it primarily in, like, well, not primarily in theaters. A twenty-four does theaters, but another studio, um, Hustlers, is the only one not from Netflix or a twenty-four in best fi- in best feature. I, I, Sticks I gotta, Entertainment. I gotta give Sticks credit because at the beginning of the year. Um, I think they had like one movie in the winter time. Then they had the god awful ugly dolls at the end of May. Then they have the pretty good hustlers, and they got twenty one bridges coming out. Like, well, they also had countdown earlier or this week as well. Womp womp. <laughs> uh, but they they are starting to turn around this year, and I give them full credit where credit is due. And they got some sneakers for sure, but they got some pretty good gems that they could throw out for awards consideration. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I have to think it's possible that whoever like signed up Hustlers maybe wasn't the person who who signed up Ugly Dolls. <laughs> it's like different people right. in that department were were Doesn't in charge matter, of those Joel, things. It's all sticks. That's sticks true. has their name on That's both. True. Yeah, sort of like uh, you know, A twenty four has you know under the skin, but it also has the vanishing of City Hall. 
Th- so, that's true. You, know, <laughs> you gotta take you gotta take the bad with the good. All right, folks. Speaking of A twenty four, let's do it, man. I'm we're reviewing an A twenty four movie this week, and that would be the Lighthouse. Uh, this is the latest movie from director uh, Robert Eggers, uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with his brother Max Eggers. And this one is uh, Eggers previously brought us The Witch, which I liked uh, quite quite a bit. It was one of the more renowned horror movies that year. Joel, it's called Possibly. the it's oh, called the the Vitch. The, the Vitch. No, yeah, no, come on. No, you're you're fired. Um, okay, no, it's called the Vitch, Joel. Come on. <laughs> oh God, no, guys, just just you know to tell people no, no. Uh, it's it's a 15th century W. It's still a W. Um. Or 16th century, whenever that movie t- took place. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, this this is the new film from Eggers, and it is <laughs> it's really something. Uh, the story here follows Winslow. Uh, I don't remember their first names, so you're just going to have to bear with me here. Um, Winslow is a younger man. He's played by Robert Pattinson. Wake is an older man. He's played by Willem Dafoe, and they are two lighthouse keepers who have come to keep a lighthouse on a, on an Island. Uh, I don't know where it is. Do you know where it is? I can't remember if it said it, uh, where it is. I think it's just isolated somewhere. Maybe we're not supposed to know, but they're, they're headed there. Wake is kind of the veteran. He's going to keep the light. He's going to make sure that the light's doing what it needs to do. And Winslow is kind of keeping the, um, uh, the house part of the lighthouse intact. And he is, uh, He's supposed to empty their chamber pots. He's supposed to refuel gasoline, uh, carry the the big carrot, the kerosene uh, tumblers up up the stairs, and it's a very um, physically demanding job. And to expound to to compound on this, it turns out that Wake, kind of an insane guy, uh, he will disrobe entirely when he's up by the lighthouse, completely nude, and do that all night. He'll just stand there all night. And meanwhile, the isolation is causing both of these men to kind of go insane. And eventually Winslow is uh, cursed with a lot of really strange visions, um, including and also is cursed by the the annoyance of a seagull, uh, the scariest animal since Black Phillip. Uh, And so it's no it's no wonder that that Robert Eggers is the director of both. (laughs) Um, So. That's pretty much the plot, guys. There's there's not much of a plot here. It's really just a two-hander between two actors uh, depicting kind of people going insane. That's that's the movie for you. So I was excited for this. I you know whenever I saw the trailer or uh, yeah I, whenever I saw the trailer or I think it was on maybe on mute. I noticed that this was supposed to be sort of an uh, an homage on Eggers' part to kind of the classic silent horror cinema, and I'm a big fan of that. A particular era of horror. I think it was the period of time when directors were really just not caring about what those horror movies were going to do to people uh, when they saw them in 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 a theater setting. And particularly the the Eastern European horror was was particularly strong. And so from the trailer, I I kind of noticed that there was some callbacks to stuff like Nosferatu. Certainly, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in terms of a very claustrophobic setting. Um, but I was struck, I just want to get started with this, I was struck by something else. Uh, the fact that in terms of his choice of camera angles and his choice of coloring in this black and white photography, 
if you want to call it coloring, shading, I guess. Eggers is kind of also calling back to Carl Theodore Dreyer's uh, 1932 masterpiece Vampire, a film that I was once obsessed with. I discovered it about, oh, more than 10 years ago now on YouTube, back when a lot of these movies were available to watch there. And, um, and so I watched it, and I've seen it more than two dozen times since then. It's very short. It's like 75 minutes. It's terrifying. It's extremely atmospheric, and it's very deliberate. In terms of what that director Dreyer was was doing, there's a constant use of long takes in a period of time when that wasn't very common. Uh, he would he would actually commonly do longer long takes than F. W. Murnau did, um, or even Fritz Lang, and particularly one that has the perspective of a corpse looking up through a slat in a uh, in a coffin. It's like a ten minute shot, and it's crazy. And there's a ton that happens through that slat. It's amazing. It's a, it's, it's a phenomenal movie in every respect. Um, I even taught it once in a nightly film class that uh, every week somebody would teach a movie. And I, I happened to have the week of October because of the um, professor kind of um, assigned this. I think it was only for the second half of the, of the semester, but it was nearly everyone in class. It might have been even more than one person. I think I might have taught that and then somebody else taught a movie. And I taught it. I, I went through most of the movie and and did sort of like what film what, what film professors do. And it was directly in it was a silent film class, so it was directly in relation to its use of silence and its use of um, the music score. Anyway, I could talk about that movie for hours. I'm not going to do that now. But I just noticed a lot in this movie that Eggers was doing to recall Dreyer, and in some cases Murnau, and uh, and Ween, the director of um, uh, Dr. Caligari. So it's a great, great little horror throwback. I love that. And uh, so I am happy to announce that it's quite good. I will say that Chase and I are going to be a little bit apart from each other on this because I already know Chase's general thoughts. Um, at least I think I know his rating. So I know that he's – that Chase, you're very high on this. But – I'm going to say that I'm maybe a little bit separated from you on this, just a little bit. I do like the movie. I, I appreciated it. I admired what it was doing. Uh, I was mostly baffled by it, and that's always a pretty good thing, especially if you come away with a strong with a strong feeling in that direction. Um, so I, I will say, though, I guess getting into – I don't know if it's a negative really, but I will say that I did feel a little distanced from this movie. I think that this this movie is an extremely forbidding and foreboding experience um, in, ma in a major way. I think that the story here of just a couple of guys who are going increasingly insane is very compelling in terms of watching these two actors work. And I'm going to get to both of them in a second, but – it, you know, first though, I just wanted to say that this is going to be a very cold experience for a lot of people. There's, there's really not much of an emotional release here, and in fact, the the last shot is about pretty much stealing that emotional experience from you. Um, it's it's as you know, cold and forbidding as anything else that's come before it. Maybe a little more so. Uh, and the but the surprises there's there's a lot of surprises here. Stuff that I really wasn't anticipating. And one of them is the fact that this is this movie's kind of darkly funny, 
in a way, and I think it's because of Willem Dafoe's performance. So the main thing to talk about here is the performances, and we'll get into some of the uh, the aesthetic choices a little bit later. But the performances here are both great. They're from, uh, again, like I said, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Uh, Dafoe plays Wake as kind of this this almost a skipper, almost like he's he was once a pirate on a ship, and he was maybe captain of that ship. And now, because of a bad leg injury, he's been grounded. He's been forced to live on land. He's been forced to work on land. And his choice of work is manning this lighthouse. Um, so what Defoe does is he just goes for broke. He plays this right up to the edge of self-parody and then stops short. And I think that his his stopping short of that goal uh, to really kind of highlight the truly menacing aspects of this character means that he's kind of terrifying in this movie, uh, especially the way that Eggers occasionally – and Eggers and, uh, and cinematographer Yaron Blaschka occasionally light his face uh, so that the use of shadow kind of distorts his face. It's really fascinating how the lighting works in this movie um, because sometimes he looks like himself. He looks like Willem Dafoe with a beard. And sometimes when he's standing up and he's and he's giving like this long monologue, um, he, he has a couple of those moments, the the light source lights him from from underneath his face so that it so it's basically like if you're standing in a bathroom and it's dark and you and you're trying to scare somebody and you use a and you use a um, a flashlight to light your face from the from the bottom to kind of like give yourself a creepy glow that's what that's what Eggers does with with Defoe here and it genuinely is terrifying um and it's a great performance even better even better for me is Robert Pattinson. And I know that people are probably thinking, what? That's just, that's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So the reason for this is because there's actually more for Pattinson to do. Just generally speaking, the narrative primarily follows him as he tries to weather these, uh, these conditions and this job. So whenever Foe's character goes up to the top of the lighthouse, we don't follow him. We stay with Pattinson and we, we witness him, Again, emptying chamber pots and doing all of these little little menial tasks that he hates doing. Um, and again, with the darkly funny thing, there's a, a little moment where he's bringing chamber pots out during a storm, and he and he misjudges where he should throw them off a cliff, where he should should throw the solids and liquids off a cliff. Let's just say that, and they all blow back on him. And it's a funny moment, but it, it's also deadly serious because whenever he comes back, he's not laughing. He didn't think it was funny at all. He's he's embarrassed. He's he's exhausted. He's hungry. He's just woken up. He's got a hangover. He's he's just not in a condition to to deal with the fact that now he has a bunch of you know <laughs> poop and pee on him. And so it's it's very much a movie that leans into bodily fluids. Just to let you know. Um, and yeah, I, I just it's it's a fascinating performance because what he does is he. He really commits to the physicality. It's a very physically demanding performance. He also leans heavy into this New York accent. He comes from the States uh, where uh, Wake, Wake does not. And um, yeah, it's it's just – it's I think it's his best performance. And this is a guy who gave us good time just a couple of years ago for A24. He clearly has a thing for A24. And 
I think is I think is his best work. It's truly, truly uh, uh, a magnificent piece of physical and intimate acting that is hard to forget. It reminds me of early Daniel Day Lewis. Honestly, I think it's that committed and that memorable. Uh, particularly some of the blowups that he has in the late parts of this narrative, uh, and maybe even like the final scene, the final stretch, um, is really just. Uh, un- unforgettably watchable. Uh, and then Defoe, again, Defoe's really funny. One thing that I forgot to mention is, um, and I guess I could get into the sound design of this movie, which is overwhelming. It really is a lighthouse at sea. You get a lot of the crashing of the waves. You get a lot of seagulls, uh, you know, cawing or whatever the verb is, and singing. I guess we'll just call it singing. You get a lot of seagulls. You get a lot of these things that they're having to move around, the features of the house, the creaky nature of the stairs, the the creaky nature of every every piece of wood. But the funniest bit of sound design here for me is every single time uh, Defoe's character farts, the sound will bleed into the foghorn. So basically what Eggers is doing is he's saying it's the same noise. It's basically the same noise. And it's just an expert and really devious and, again, really funny in a dark way bit of sound design. Uh, like I said, uh, you go in knowing what you're coming up coming up against, and that's a lot of bodily fluid and, and gas, exer- gas eliciting uh, from human bodies. It's, it's very much that kind of movie. It's two men in close quarters. Obviously, it's going to get a little bit personal uh, in that way, and it gets pretty gross um, to those who are not who are not prepared. And in fact, I think that uh, so I had a theater that was maybe half full um, by the end of all of it, and there were a few walkouts. Uh, this is the type of movie that is not commercial. Um, it's amazing that A twenty four is releasing it wide in any respect. But yeah, it is not commercial. It is a very off, sometimes off-putting movie, particularly as it becomes more violent, as these delusions that they have become more solidified. And uh, much of it has to do with Winslow's kind of um, habit of <laughs> pleasuring himself to a mermaid figurine because it's all he has. And of course, that then kind of uh, bleeds into actual an actual mermaid, maybe an actual mermaid played by Valeria Kahneman, who uh, who shows up, and we get a lot of crazy imagery re- uh, related to that. And yeah, so basically, this is a movie about insane people just going insane. Um, and to that degree, it's good. I think that what this movie is missing is some sense of these characters as people, because I didn't really feel any sort of connection to them. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. But I think that there is a tragic element to this story too. And especially as it goes on, especially with that last shot is very morbidly, tragically ironic. Um, or the last scene really is very ironic. And for me, I felt like I was, I was at a distance from it, admiring the craft and certainly admiring the performances. Eggers really, really does get a lot out of them. I did feel a little bit at a, at a distance. So I like this movie. I want to make that clear. I'm giving it, I think, yeah, I'm going to give it a B. 
I'm going to give it a B because I just can't do anything but admire this movie for its for its balls, really. <laughs> it's, it's the best way to put it, for its for its balls and for for its ambition. Um because this is a beautifully made piece of work, but it's also extremely forbidding, very cold, and easily will turn off people. So, and honestly, it had the same reaction to The Witch. That was a movie that I came, that I gave like a B or a B plus when it came out. So, it may be a it may be a a situation where I like a lot of what Eggers is doing in his movies. Maybe wish that he would channel them into something that embraces the emotional parts of the storytelling that he clearly wants to touch. And I felt like the witch did a little bit of, um, a little bit of the distancing, distancing effect in the third act when it becomes basically a chamber drama. And then when it opens up the world a little bit, this one doesn't do that. But, um, yeah, I, I just, just felt a little bit at a distance from this. So I can't really embrace the movie, but I do admire it quite a bit. So, I'm giving it a B. Uh, Chase, I know that you're a lot higher on this movie. I will let you uh, describe and, and tell us why. So there you go. Yeah, so with The Lighthouse, it, guys, A24, director of The Witch, I was already down for this. I didn't even care if like they botched the marketing with it. I was going to see it regardless. So super excited to see it. And <laughs> funny enough, uh, when I left the theater that night, that was one of the nights uh, – uh, that stormed really bad and uh oh man yeah so we had a tornado hit this week um yeah. this sunday and was it sunday yeah it was sunday yeah. and uh had some damage i'm sure that some people have heard about this it was a huge tornado um there's several of them there were several yeah. of them uh i was about maybe three miles from one uh that passed through a city next to me called allen i I work in a city called Frisco. Um, I guess it's a city away from me, but it was it was pretty close. Uh, one of my I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm getting off tangent, but yes, there was no, a tornado, no, would... and that's very uncommon in Dallas. I just want to tell people. Right. Very no, very uh, uh, Yeah. The, the a few days ago there was a terrible storm, and then when I saw the lighthouse a few weeks ago, there was also a terrible storm. So just know that the storms are not calm here, and they just love to just un- unleash the terror. So. Um, but I just thought it was funny because, like, when I left the movie, I was driving, like, 10 miles per hour on the highway because I couldn't see anything. Uh, and I just – I started laughing maniacally in the car because in the lighthouse, there's terrible storm scenes in that one, too. I'm like, I deserve this. Uh, if, if you watch a movie with um, uh, about two men in a lighthouse with terrible weather condition, uh, you were bound to drive in it on the way home. Uh, so l- little piece of uh, funny uh, trivia there for you. So – um. Yeah, so I saw the movie, and I walked out going, wow. I was kind of like on the same page with Joel. I really liked that quite a bit. But since I was driving 10 miles per hour on the highway, it took me a lot longer to get home. Almost triple the time it would. So I had a lot of time to think about it, which is great because when you are uh, when you're a critic and you know you do stuff like what Joel and I do – you don't want to just pump out the review as fast as possible. If it's a movie that is kind of neutral and whatever, it's a lot easier to talk about. Or if it's bad, you can kind of uh, you know plot your review out pretty quickly. But if it's 
if it's a different movie, if it's a really great movie or a good movie, you want to sit and think about it. So I had a lot of time to think about it. And by the time I got home, I realized that I loved it. And Eggers is one of these directors to me that it just, he knows how to create an experience. Now, I agree with Joel that this movie is a little cold and distant from um, actually being attached to these characters or what is happening. But I think as a horror film and presenting it the way he did, uh, the way he went about things and his delivery in this entire thing, it made for one heck of an experience. And I think that's what I took away from it. And I think if you're going to have a movie about two guys losing their their dang minds on this, this island, I think he did a fantastic job. I also find it kind of cool that he has a neat interpretation of way back when. Because, uh, you know, the witch was in the 1600s. This is in the late 1800s. He's about to do a Viking film that's in the 10th century. He has a real fascination with um, older time periods and... Uh, kind of incorporating witchcraft and possession and um, that stuff into that time frame because in that time frame, uh, especially in the witches instance, you know, people were thinking everyone was a witch and everyone was being burned at the stakes. And, you know, a lot of that uh, was just people um, going crazy and, you know, thinking that something was completely wrong when, when nothing really was. And so he's taking all these kind of like real life scenarios that people would go through and cranking up the supernatural and the possession and the uh, kind of witchcraft of these stories to like an 11 and really kind of going there. And I, I find that fascinating that he's he's done this twice now and I will guarantee you that he's going to do it for the Viking film as well. But he uh, for the lighthouse, it was like watching a really great episode of like the Twilight Zone. Just from the way it was presented, the music, um, the the story, it just it felt like something plucked out of time, and we were watching something that Rod Sterling would introduce, um, and the way it ends, and he would come back on and say, you know, these two men uh, fell into this, um, uh, you know, loss of the mind, and all, you know what what a Rod Sterling uh, um, monologue would be, but. Yeah, it was. That's my jam, though. I love weird movies. I love uh, horror films. Um, I love, uh, you know, horror films that are unconventional. Uh, things that are presented in a a way that you've never seen before. I love all that, and so I think that's why I'm gravitating towards it more than Joel Joel is. But uh, I think Eggers does a lot of great things here. You know, he balances uh, this movie in presentation and. Uh, uh, tone very well because on one hand it is it, it's like watching this delirious fairy tale um, of something of an else world something that you would never even comprehend happening in in the real life uh, real world but he manages to also make it grounded so it does have like this kind of almost like sci-fi fantasy bend but it plays out like a drama and a horror as well with some even um, great comedic moments that are unexpected thrown in there, too. So it's a great balancing um, movie that he was able to kind of handle with all these tones. And I think it was a, a it was a weird blend, for sure. A blend, nonetheless. And I thought it was delivered quite well. Um, 
the actual visual visual presentation of it, I loved. Yes, it is boxed in. It feels claustrophobic, and it just adds to the extra element of the you know the characters feeling claustrophobic, and so we feel claustrophobic. It's a it's um it's the type of experience you want. So if you have two people kind of going crazy, you want to kind of feel the same way. You want to have that anxiety kind of wash over you and be a part of the experience. And I think he does that with uh, just the the closing in on the the image itself and making it boxed the black and white and the overall cinematography is exquisite it, like it is it is a delicious movie to look at everything about it is framed so precisely and uh it's got a lot of depth to it and it just it's stuff that's framed in a way that you haven't seen in film before and it is like Joel said almost like being plucked out of a silent film era, you know, and played in 2019. And that is uh, what's great about it. It just adds that extra kind of layer to the film overall. And there was even, because, you know, Joel mentioned uh, like Nosferatu and all the like kind of silent uh, horror films way back when. There was even some shots that looked like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And I was like, this is just fascinating. Oh, oh it, it definitely borrows from them. Too. Right. Yeah, it's like, sure. it's crazy. Like how many different silent film genres he, he kind of was inspired from. And that was really, really just fun to watch on a technical level. Cause you, you want to have, you want to have like a, a visual stimulant as you're watching a movie. Now, you know, like there's some cases where like the report, for instance, when I watch, I watched that also this week, that's not a visually compelling movie. It's it's compelling on a different level with more dialogue heavy and uh, acting forward on that movie. But like on this one, Joel is correct. The story is not – it's not anything that's, you know, really deep or profound. I mean they do kind of touch upon, you know uh, – uh, how do I put it? Like because uh, there, there's a couple scenes where like, you know – Defoe's like, you know, don't mess with the seagulls and all that stuff. It's, you know, souls of, you know, dead seamen and all that stuff, you know. So it deals a lot with uh, tall tales, like uh, campfire stories and all, all that stuff. But it's not like it's not like a story that expands any further than that. It's literally just two guys going crazy because they, they're isolated. But so on that, on that note, you have to have something that has like that visual punch to it that provides dread. It provides um, awe and excitement in just the way it, it looks, and it delivers that in space. I absolutely love the the beautiful black and white cinematography that is portrayed here. Uh, so let's see what else. Uh, yes, and so going back to Eggers uh, for a little bit on uh, uh, directing here. When you're crafting a movie about um, paranoia, anxiety, and having two characters just go absolutely mad you have to you know you got to progress it in a certain way and you have to uh kind of ease into it and just kind of build up this rising tension throughout and even to the very last frame of it being a little cold and distant you know it's got to provide that kind of punch and I, I i do think that he was able to craft the paranoia as best as he could and uh, the two people in front of that were Defoe and Pattinson, which is a great segue into that because Robert Pattinson is absolutely fantastic here. The actual commitment to both of these guys to deliver the dialect of the uh, late 1800s um, uh, and, and just the being a part of this environment, being stuck on 
the lighthouse and the island and being a part of this world, they really were committed for sure. Um, dialect in particular, because Eggers did uh, did this again, uh, just like he did with the witch, and he researched actual journals and um, diaries from lighthouse keepers and like actual people in that uh, era of time. And so uh, he did that research and he applied that to the script. So, because he did that with the witch as well, in that kind of uh, English from the the 1600s. So he did it again. It just adds to the authenticity. Uh, but Pattinson and Defoe were really, really committed in doing that because there's sometimes where I couldn't even hear what exactly they were saying, and that's okay. I got the gist of the scene. Um, I just, I, I just thought it was cool how they went in like 120 percent. Uh, of their uh, characters was awesome. But yeah, Pattinson, I, I kind of agree with Joel. I think it's the best thing he's done so far. It's like this and Good Time are like up there, but I think this inches it just uh, a little bit above because it's a great descent into madness. I mean, when he gets the, into that island, he's really confident. He's like, I'm, I'm going to get my money. I'm going to get paid. And then he slowly starts losing his mind. And that final kind of third act, especially when he actually gets to the lighthouse, it's some good stuff because he's basically acting against the lighthouse. Like that's really hard to do. It's like if you're asking an actor to act um, against a three D animated rendering of a character, and when you're actually on set, you're not acting against anything. Like you might have a prop, but you have to really sell it to us. And I think him being on this island, being stuck in the situation that he's in, going up to that lighthouse uh, the several times that he does, it was so convincing. Like it was, it was amazing when he. When he blew up on Defoe towards the end, it was just like, it really got under my skin. I was just like, yeah, get frustrated. Like, what is going on here? There's some there's some stuff going on. You need to find out. And so, uh, yeah, he, he sells it uh, completely, and it was an absolute joy to watch. Defoe is cartoonish. Now, the thing is, they actually, they, they poke fun of it in the movie. They are very aware that he is cartoony, and... I would even say that he's like a Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. That's not entirely accurate, but it, there's some truth there. Um, it's kind of like a Mr. Krabs. Um, it, what I find fascinating uh, by it is that it, it is cartoonish, and he does have farting moments, so that it provides this weird levity to the film that you would never expect which is, uh, again, going back to Eggers, this whole thing is just like a like a mystery. It's unexpected. I have no idea what's going to happen, which is great about it. It just takes you along for the ride, and it's very alluring. I have no idea what each scene is going to bring us, but that's that's the draw to it. And that Defoe's performance is the same way because he does have these comedic moments. He sounds like a, 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 a captain that you would find in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie or something. But then... In the same exact scene, he can turn it around and completely scare the crap out of you. It's he can get terrifying in certain moments, and I just I like that. I, I like that he is a mysterious character. He's unexpected, and it plays along to the movie's um, kind of vision. And so he's he's funny in one moment, and then the next moment he can stare down Robert Pattinson and give you like the death eyes to where like his, you can feel Pattinson's soul burning on the spot. You're like, yeah, that's the type of performance I love. But yeah, they're, they're both, um, 
great for one another, uh, great back and forth, uh, completely different personalities, um, but it just it just works, and yeah, they're definitely the driving force behind it. Uh, last thing I'll mention is the music. Uh, Joel mentioned the sound design, which I absolutely agree. It's just it's it's an assault on the ears for sure, but once again, kind of it's disorienting, and that once again provides to the kind of paranoia experience you have the waves crashing you have the the fog horn you have um the the rain you have the the wooden creaks every time you walk throughout the the house it's just it's it's really uh immersive and much and much flatulence y- yes and a, a lot of flatulence <laughs> but it's really immersive and it just once again just adds to the experience and the music is fantastic it's also kind of harking uh harking back on silent films from way back when and just it transports you to a different time and it um it it adds the anxiety to the film for sure and especially when Pattinson's having delusions that's when the music is really striking it's just it's the the type of score that I felt the same way when I uh, saw like the last black man in San Francisco I was like this is a great score I'm going to remember this for the rest of the year so yeah, it has one of the best uh, scores. It's haunting. It's eerie. It gets under your skin, and it just uh, I think that's where it kind of reminded me of a Twilight Zone episode is the the music the most. So, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I love it. It's in the top ten currently. Uh, I won't tell you where, but it is uh, unless something can kick it out. Now remember, we still have two more months left of movies. Anything can happen, folks. But for right now, I am comfortable with giving the Lighthouse an A. Uh, definitely one of my favorites of the year so far. It is my jam, but I agree with Joel, and I will say this as a warning: it is not for everybody. I don't. I love the fact that A twenty four pumps these movies out into wide, wide release uh, because it does kind of test audiences a little bit to see what sticks and what doesn't. Uh, like with Hereditary, for instance, that is a horror film that is not like a traditional horror film that you would see. Um, but it made some money. It divided a lot of people. I just, I love the fact that they keep toying with people, um, with stuff like this, but if they want to continue to keep pumping out experimental stuff like this, I'm all for it. And so, uh, lighthouse is just another example to me of them throwing a dart at the board and it sticks that bullseye for me. So I'm going to give it an A and who knows, Joel, maybe on a rewatch, you might, you might appreciate it more. Who maybe, knows? Maybe so. It's it's entirely possible. With movies like this, it's never in it's never in stone. So right, I yeah, may that, I may very well watch things it. where like ten years from now I could be like, what was I thinking? This was the worst thing I've I've seen. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and I I was gonna say something. I forgot what I was gonna say. Goodness me, live show guys. Well, semi. And, all right. And I just wanted to say real quick. Uh, out of all the horror films I've seen this year thus far, um. Uh, and this is excluding Doctor Sleep, and I think maybe one more. It has some of the best—I um, won't say jump scare, but definitely best crafted um, horrific sequences. You know, terror, suspense that I've seen uh, in a film this year. Uh, particularly when he, um, without any context to any of this, you know, Joel knows what I'm talking about when he's entering the water uh, for mm-hmm. for a certain creature. Um, Anytime when he's going to the lighthouse and uh, Dufoe is there and not there. And like, it's just every time when he has a nightmare or like a delusion, it is, it's stuff that I, I, I get 
like I just get excited about because I'm like this is this is a really well crafted scene. Like why can't other horror movies be this good? And so I yeah I think out of all the horror films I've seen this year uh, so far, definitely some of the best. Let's just call it quote unquote jump scare moments or stuff that gets under your skin. Uh, really effective stuff. Yeah. Uh, it certainly is in that way, at least until we see Parasite. Um, okay. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's our review. Uh, make of it what you will. <laughs> if you go see this and you're like, what? I would give this an F. Don't blame, don't blame us. It's, it's one of those. It's a, it's a stern, it's a stern watch. Let's just say. It, it is not for everybody. I just want right. to get that fair <laughs> warning out there just because I gave it an A grade. It's it's going to polarize people. It's the same thing I said about Ad Astra. Like I rated that super high, and now I'm realizing it's got a lot of backlash now. But between yeah. people there that see or hear my review and go, "This is not what you you said it was." It's so boring. There's no script there. There's no characters, and it's like, okay, that's cool. But I did warn you that it's not going to be. It's not your conventional space movie, or like this is not your conventional horror film or drama. Like it's it's going to be out there and experimental you either have to embrace it or it's like joel said you know you can watch it and feel cold that's fine but it's going to be different so i'm just giving you that warning yeah it is it's something all right folks uh that's it for this week next week is a big week for me but we are going to have an episode a review episode on sunday uh the third and we are reviewing Jojo Rabbit, so it should be very interesting because I've been hearing a lot of very wildly different things about this. Uh, it's it's pretty divisive. So we'll see what we're we'll see what we uh, what we fall. So um, this is going to be next week's episode. And until then, you can find my writing at joelonfilm.com. I've got a review of the lighthouse up there now, as well as for Dolomite is my name, uh, which Chase already saw, and Pain and Glory. Uh, to give you an idea, I gave both of those movies higher ratings than The Lighthouse. Um, so yeah, good week. And Dolomite, and my, Dolomite is my name is in particular is a lot of fun. Uh, so definitely go get get on those uh, both both terrific movies. And you can read my reviews now at JoelOnFilm.com. You can also read some of my stuff at uh, DallasMovieScreenings.com. I have a review up for the Kill Team this week um, over there. And let's see, you can follow my ramblings on Twitter at Real Joel Copeland. You can follow my daily progress viewing movies on Letterboxd if you search my name. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much where I am. Chase, what about you? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Real Chase Lee. If you guys want to follow the uh, podcast on Twitter, it's at Real Me and Podcast. If you guys want to follow um, YouTuber, you don't really have to follow me too because you guys get all my reviews regardless. But if you want to, you want to see my my terrible face, and you can do that. Um, but until then, if you listen on the podcast and the feed and everything, Spotify, Castbox, uh, iHeartRadio, iTunes, wherever you get this thing, if you want to spread it around, let people know what is up. And uh, this is your favorite movie podcast. Please uh, do that. We would really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, next week will be Jojo Rabbit. Uh, I'm gonna, like I said, give you guys a little bit of break on the mini reviews. Might have one on Parasite. Don't know. I gotta see if uh, uh, I watch it this weekend or next week. It 
it's going to be in theaters for long for a long time, folks. I don't have to see it right away because it's going to be a, an award. This contender. thing is this thing is breaking records at the box office, like right. relative relative to a movie its size and and, and all you know of that. that was, you know what that tells me, Joel? It's going to be in theaters for a very very long time. Yes, so it, and, I don't and have fact, to see so it right away. It was shot for the equivalent of eleven million dollars in the U.S. I think it was. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what the currency is there. I'm sorry, I, I'm not up on that. Whatever it was over there, it's like 14.5 billion of those. Uh, over here, it's 11 million dollars, and it's currently, I think, like already almost at 100 million dollars uh, worldwide. So that is insane, and I can't wait to see it. I'm seeing it on Monday, so yeah, I'm I think uh, I think this is going to be uh, Neon's biggest hit, and yeah. that, that's awesome. So uh, yeah, Un- so if I unlikely and awesome, right? Um, yeah, so if uh, if I don't see Parasite for you guys, uh, it it's gonna come out before the end of the year. But I'm gonna give uh, mostly a break, and you guys will just get the main episode, Jojo Rabbit, next week. Almost to episode 300, good stuff. So uh, yeah, that will do it for this episode of Real Me and Cole, a movie podcast. Thank you for joining us on this movie conversation. I am Chase. That is Joel. Whenever you're listening to this, have a good day, good night, and uh, you guys are awesome. Take care. See you guys next week for a very delightful family film about Hitler. Going to be fun stuff. Uh, from Disney, by the way, so makes that statement more ironic. Disney's All right. Hitler. Right, so we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.